Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's the Fight Fan with Pete Hoffman time. Hey, like Roy Jones said, I said, y'all must have forgot. And I see you media people as well with your little clickbait headlines. But trust me, I have to make y'all remember why we the best. I saw some criticism. People say the punches weren't really necessary. What do you mean, why were they not necessary? Because he was already knocked out at that point. But it, the referee hadn't pulled me off. And my job is to hit somebody till the referee pulls me off. So to so those people, I would say, maybe don't watch him and then go back to soccer. How good does it feel to be better? You know what I mean? I'm very proud of that accomplishment. The UFC, they can strip fighters and give to the fighters, make believe belts in order to replicate my champ champ status. But they can't give knockout victories across multiple weight divisions. It's my name in history one more time. For the Irish people, for me, man, like power. And look at the bits for the win. Thank you. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. On WFAN and Radio.com. I'm on the West Coast side. Mike Tyson should have been here anyway. He's the baddest man on the planet, right? He should have been the one. He should have been the one over here. Uh, I'm over here with her on the rock, huh? <laughs> you guys caught me under under a bad bad time, but you know what I'm saying? The rock's cool. I like ballers. I like ballers. You know what I'm saying? But he picked the wrong side. He picked another side, so he could get it, too. He could get his ass whipped, too. Straight up. With all due respect, he could get it, too. I definitely want to defend my 145 belt. And let's see, I'm going to talk to Dana. Dana, tomorrow I'm going to call you. We're going to have a talk. I love you, boy. Suki, you will is coming tomorrow. And she doesn't know what's coming. Don't blink tomorrow. Believe me, I put such a great job. Suki, you will is coming for you Here's your fight fan host, Pete Hoffman. This is the Fight Fan with your host, Pete Hoffman. Follow me at the HoffWFAN. At the Fight Fan WFAN is the show Twitter page. At the Fight Fan with Pete Hoffman. YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and WFAN.com and radio, radio.com. Um, this week, we just have such a huge uh, guest list that I'm not going to do a huge intro. Uh, we do have the Edwards versus Muhammad fight tomorrow. Um, that that is uh, on ESPN plus Leon Edwards was originally supposed to to face Kamaev, um, but got hurt or because of COVID reasons had to drop out of the fight. And Bilal Muhammad stepped in, and that is tomorrow at 8 p.m. Look for my picks tomorrow, and I will put them out there along with a bunch of others: Jan Gomes, um, Mike Carter Williams. 
Arthur Motes, uh, Dan Henderson gave some picks last week, Chris Wade even got some Brandon Dubinsky picks, which hopefully Brandon Dubinsky will be with us next week. Supposed to happen this week, but there was a hiccup on my end, and he, we will have him next week, which is dope. Um, but again, so look for the picks tomorrow for that, and then uh, also just, you know, anything else that I post will be through social media. Some clips from the interviews and whatnot, just in case. Because again, this is we got three guests right now, and uh, they're pretty long. So maybe you just want to focus in on the, the guests that you're interested in. But um, we have today. I'm excited because he's one of my favorite fighters of all time. He kind of again one of the pioneers that got me into watching MMA. Listen, I was watching MMA anyway before that, but then I saw this this man and. Um, was awesome to uh, when I saw him fight. Uh, Rich Franklin, former middleweight champion of the UFC, uh, joins. He's in Singapore, which was crazy to talk to him. I was up at 8 at night, and he was up at 9 in the morning his time. Awesome interview. Gave me almost like a full freaking hour, which is crazy. Um, so he joins me. We have and- Andrea Lee, which there was a big fight announcement for her. She's facing a Shevchenko, not Valentina Shevchenko, but she is facing Antonina Shevchenko, um, May 15th, UFC 262, so that's dope. And then also Montel Ice Griffin. Um, if you don't know his story, definitely listen, listen in. He's got a book out. Um, we'll promote the book. We'll talk about his story. It's pretty awesome. And he just, dude, it, you talk about perfect timing Aljamain Sterling wins the bantamweight title due to DQ, and Montel Griffin won his belt versus Roy Jones Jr. by DQ. So you talk about who's who's the closest to this situation. Has this ever happened before? This is the perfect time to have Montel Griffin on, so he gets into that. Um, But we will get into all that and more. Uh, again, you're listening to the Fight Fan with Pete Hoffman. So first up, Rich Franklin. Again, he's in Singapore, so there's actually uh, some technical glitches and whatnot um, that we have to buy, get, get through. So it kind of comes in a little crazy the uh, the first part of this interview, but awesome time. So get ready. Here he is, Rich Franklin. You know the crazy thing is like this. This is a little studio setup I have for uh, my podcast in in my apartment. And it's, it's a simple little setup, but when you're running a one man show, I do my own lighting, my own camera work. Like I, I have to upload all my files, download all my stuff. And so I don't know. Cause I, I recorded, uh, did I record last night or the night before? Either way, I don't know how my system settings got changed, but they did. And so no matter what we did, like the microphone was not allowing access. So anyway, I've, I've fixed that now. So oh, good. Well, you, well, I don't even know if I can finish this entire, entire, uh, conversation. Look where I am right now. I'm at my house. My studio is not set up yet. So I usually do this out of my whole, out of my, my office. But because it's you, I will do whatever it takes. I've been trying to interview for you for years now, by the way. But okay. I, you, how, you've been, you come back and forth between Singapore and Ohio? Or what's the deal? Yeah, I do. So I, I, I moved down to Singapore a few years back. And I, with the understanding that I, I just have a lot of stuff going on in the States, right? You know, I mean, yeah. just can't pick up and leave. So I would bounce, I bounce back home several times a year, but this situation that we have currently with the pandemic makes it really difficult 
to, to get back home. So, um, you know, I'm going to have to kind of re-strategize and re-game plan all that kind of stuff because one is located here in Singapore. And so prior to moving down here, <clears throat> they initially talked to me about moving down. I was working from Ohio for, for one. And initially I was like, no, I'm not. And then I think it was 2016. I did 10 trips. Now it's the, I'm on the exact opposite side of the planet is East coast time. So I know. as of this coming weekend, it'll be a 12 hour flip. Uh, I, I don't know when you're going to post this, but once it, once we go back to daylight, you can cut that out. Once we go back to daylight saving, <laughs> it'd be a 12 hour flip. And so w- what would end up happening in 2016 is when I would travel down here, I, I would, I would essentially like flip flop my, my, you know, my, my circadian rhythms. Then about the time I got it straightened out, I would go home and then re flip flop these things. So, you know, cause I'm doing almost one trip a month and I was down here for about two weeks at a time. So I'm literally like half the time home, half the time here. And, uh, and I said, no, this, this isn't working just that much, that much flying internationally in those kind of time zones will take years off your life. I think that takes more years off your life than the, some of the training camps I've been through. That's crazy. dude. And like, honestly, like, how do you, how do you even work that sleep schedule? Like, how do you sit? Cause by the time you will finally adjust, you're like flying home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, there's, there's a level of excitement to it at first, but then after you do a few trips, you're like, and that's what happened. They, they asked, they, they talked to me about moving down here. And initially I, was, I said, man, no, 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 my home is here. But then when I saw how much time I was spending on the road and how, even when, whether I was here or at home, I was trashed half the time. You know, if you've oh, ever, yeah. I don't know how many of the listeners have ever actually flown to the other side of the planet, but it is brutal to try to get your, to, to get your bearings straight. You're, you're, you're up at three in the morning and sleeping at two in the afternoon and it's, it's terrible. So anyway, yeah, I decided to flip flop to this side of the planet. And so I just, you know, managed that with several lengthy trips home uh, a year. Well, again, again, we're being joined by Rich Franklin. Uh, yeah. What am I, what are my favorite? Yeah. Dude, what are my favorite? You're, you're by far one of my favorite fighters of all time. So this is like an honor for me to be talking to you right now. I'm super stoked by this. Uh, and you when have, you say- you say one of your favorite does that put me like top three top five top ten like i want to know where my ranking is here Dude, so you're one of the you're one of the reasons of back i would say top two because you're one of the reasons why i got into ufc you okay. and andre olofsky like i i love watching you two fight you know right, I, can- uh, I i go way back like i i don't remember the first fight i ever saw it's, it's before the olofsky days because i used to watch the pride fights and stuff like that too but i mean your championship fights I was always locked into my friends would always get together. We talk about you because your history too, like your school teacher doing this on the side. It was, dude, it was crazy. It was like, dude, I, I got excited watching the everyday man fight in the cage. Well, that's exactly what the sport needed at that time. Right. I mean, we were, it was full of the tank Abbots and the uh, preconceived notion that everybody was just a tat, tatted up barroom brawler. And so <laughs> when somebody like me walked onto the scene, it was like, wait, wait, wait a minute. And I wasn't even, it wasn't like a character or anything. It's just, who I was as a person. And it was kind of nice because I look at the landscape of the, uh, of the fight world today and <clears throat> the, um, the, the kind of promotion, self-promotion that you have to do. It, uh, sometimes I look at guys, I'm like, man, are you being true to who you are right now? And uh, I was always true to who I was. So it was nice. It was nice just being that kind of boy next door uh, that grew up, you know, in the, in the Midwest U.S., uh, went to college to be a teacher, Christian, all that kind of stuff. Like there was no, no act. I didn't have to talk trash, but I think that if today, if I wanted to be able to market myself and garner the same kind of popularity that I had back then, it would be a much different game for sure. 
No, you, I mean, you're right. Colby Covington is the, the epitome of that. Like, that guy literally was close to getting cut, or he thought he was getting cut from, from the UFC. And not because of his skill set, not because of his performance in the cage, but, well, because I guess some people thought he was boring. All of a sudden, it turned that, that like, WWE mentality. And now, next thing you know, it's like he's one of the most talked about fighters in the game because of what he says outside of the cage. You know, yeah, I, don't, I don't know what I would do about that because, uh, because it's just, it's not my personality. I mean, I'm, I'm opinionated about things, but I'm, but on, at the same time, like, I just, I don't know. I'm just not much of a trash talker. I let my, I let uh, this, this and this, these do my trash talking. The left and the right. The yeah, exactly. So tell me about the quite Franklin podcast, which is an awesome idea. It's a perfect name, by the way, it's amazing. But, uh, so tell me, how'd you, how'd you, when did it finally strike you? Like, Hey, I, I want to get into the podcast podcast game. Well, okay. So prior to the pandemic working for one championship, I was traveling over here and, um, I was running a, I was running a travel show for one championship. You can see this poster behind me here. I've actually strategically placed my camera so that you can't see the top of it. <laughs> it's actually a poster of me that, uh, that my producer wanted on set at one point in time. And, uh, it's, it's a poster of the, the season of, of one warrior series. And then I was like, it's kind of weird having a big picture of me behind me on set. So I've, I've placed it so that you can see the logo, but not me. Anyway, uh, so I was, I was doing this travel show. It was really a, a dream job for one championship. So what I was doing was I was traveling around, recruiting talent, and making essentially making a TV show out of it. It aired in several different countries over here. Uh, and I just had a great time, man. I mean, you know, between meeting the athletes, uh, going to different communities, learning cultures, doing some crazy things, jumping off of waterfalls in the middle of the jungle and stuff like that. Like we had a really good time and it's a fun show. The first four seasons of the show is on, on YouTube. You can catch it there. But when the, when the pandemic hit travel stopped and you know, my team at the time, we were looking at what we wanted to do. So we decided that we were going to, well, the initial idea, I don't know if you, if you remember, but what happened like when the NBA canceled their season was there was a lot of like analyst type of shows. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Where it was like, people were like reviewing last year's games and stuff like that. So we had this kind of concept like that somewhat cued, but as we started as we started recording, they, it just was kind of more and more turning into this podcast mentality. And we had started actually working on this idea uh, prior to the, the, the whole pandemic, the, the lockdowns, all that kind of stuff before the travel restrictions came. And so we were somewhat cued for it. And then when, the, when everything just kind of shut down, we just said, okay, let's just turn and, and do this. And so we started recording a podcast at the time. So I was doing a podcast for one championship and then it was never a strategic endeavor for them. And, uh, and so when the restrictions and the bands lifted and all that kind of stuff and business started getting back to normal, because I have the job that I do for one championship, I said, you know what, I want to continue doing this on my own. So I just can, you know, continue doing a podcast uh, for myself and, and I, I enjoy it. It's, it's interesting thinking about the podcast because, you know, I was, I used to be a high school teacher and I've, I've learned that in life, I, I really appreciate kind of like disseminating information, you know, impacting people's lives. And most importantly, like making people think like really thinking about things like, you know, so that you can consider stuff. And, uh, and, and as I was, as I was doing this, I was like, man, it's funny how life comes full circle because, you know, I, I as I was a, a fighter, 
you, you mean, you think about it, like I was kind of doing the same thing, like, you know, so-and-so quote unquote, uh, preaching the gospel of MMA at the time when it was deemed a, a human cockfighting in the U S right. and, uh, and, and so I kind of played this role as teacher to athletic commissions, to the associated press, all that kind of stuff. But then life comes full circle. And now I have this podcast and essentially it's like my ability to kind of teach or share information or inspire people or whatever, or I don't know, maybe people listen and they're like, you suck. Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> Well, listen, it's awesome. It's, it's a cool premise. I love it, dude. Um, and I just like, I love the fact that you're still so heavily involved with MMA and like, you must have like a huge passion for it clearly because you, you are ambassador of the sport and, and what made you jump to one? What was the, what was the game changer for you? Because you've been there, what, five years now? Uh, no longer than that. Seven. So what, what yeah. made you, what made you make that jump? Well, you know, at the time when I was retiring, I actually, so after I lost my last fight, uh, I, I took some time. I like, I think there was a period of time where in my mind, I knew that it was, I was ready to retire and move on. Not physically. I actually, I still feel physically really good, but, um, but mentally I was just at that point where I'm like, you know, competition, I'm not as hungry as I used to be. And, uh, and so I knew that it, it was kind of time for me to move on. And when I was looking at retiring, I actually, I met with uh, some of the people at one championship here. And uh, at the time, you know, I was talking to, to uh, Chatri. I come down, I'd come down to Singapore to teach a seminar. And he just said, Hey, if you're ever interested in, you know, working when you retire, let me know. And so at the time, the UFC had talked about finding a position for me to work there. But when it came down to retirement and I talked to them, they really didn't have anything for me. And this was a good opportunity. And, and I, you, you Old, I'll say this, old habits die hard, right? I mean, this is why you see athletes that, that maybe oftentimes they, they continue to compete way past their prime or whatever, but it's because this, that's your first love. And so it's, it's a blessing to me to be able to continue working in an industry that I started off just doing as a complete hobby back when I was in high school, right? I mean, like, I, I never... When I started training, I never thought that this would ever become a career. And then when I got to the point where I started thinking about making this a, I'll, I'll do this with my, my fingers, the air quotes, <laughs> career. I mean, this was like, when I considered leaving, when I truly considered leaving teaching full time, it was 2001. And when you go back to history and look at the state of the sport at that point in time, I mean, first of all, it was still banned in, in most of the states in the US. Yeah. And secondly, the thought of actually making a air quote again career out of something like this, like what, what were your potential annual earnings, right? Like I had a good job as a teacher with a pension and all that kind of stuff. So it really was like, when I look back at it, I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of scratching my head at the, at the uh, mid twenties version of myself going, what were you thinking, dude? Uh, but that's, fortunately I've been able to operate that whole, that way my whole life. And that's what get has gotten me to where I am, you know, by these, unrealistic ideas in life and, and uh, the ability to just say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to pursue this, re, uh, you know, with no thought of repercussions or any of that kind of stuff. I'm just, I'm just diving head in. Well, that's how, that's how you become a champion. You just go out there and you have to have that mindset of nothing can stop me. And that's basically Absolutely. what you did, which is crazy because you're right. I mean, back in the day, I mean, I don't know what the pay scale was back in the day. I know what it is now. It's still not that, not that great. You know, you look, you look at these young kids that are hungry. Like, I want to be a fighter. It's like, you really have to set yourself above everybody else to get a payday. You know, you could even be in a pay-per-view card and still not get paid pay-per-view points. 
No, it's, you know, exactly. And sometimes pay-per-view points aren't the best idea. You know, when, when it came time for my contract negotiation, we decided not to put pay-per-view points in. I, I don't know if it was my last or my second last contract that we did, which was actually ended up being smart because the, Uf, the Uf, UFC at that time started using me to open new markets. I fought in Ireland twice. I fought in Germany mm. and I started fighting like in different places in, in Canada, which is still, you know, on that side of the planet. But your your pay-per-view numbers get affected tremendously when you're running a pay-per-view in like Ireland, for example, because the time difference and, you know, your East Coast time, for example, they're not going to tune in at three o'clock in the afternoon to watch a match, or at least the percentage drops significantly. But, you know, make no mistake about it. It's not just MMA. It's not just boxing. It's not just combative sports in general. Athletes in any sport, you know, as a kid uh, growing up, like I dreamed of being a professional athlete. I, I played American football, uh, and I, uh, by the way, living overseas, I have to say American football because over here, if you say football, everybody just assumes that you mean soccer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> so anyway, it's, just, it's almost like it's almost like this bad habit that I want to smack myself for. <laughs> but uh, but no, so I, I grew up playing football from the time I was uh, eight years old to the time I graduated. And I dreamed, dreamed, dreamed of, of playing this sport professionally. And I just didn't have the God given talent for that kind of stuff. Like, really, I didn't have the size at the time, the explosiveness or the speed that I needed to be that kind of athlete. And fortunately, I, I got involved in martial arts. And initially, I was in a traditional karate, Shorinru Matsubayashi Ru, Okinawan style karate. And that's where I got my first black belt. And <clears throat> pardon me. And then, um, and then I, you know, I realized like, oh, this is something that I can do well. But when you look across the board at different athletes in various sports like even you you dream of being the michael jordan of your sport and fortunately i was able to to live out that dream somewhat you know to make it to the creme de la creme of my sport but the, the reality is that even if you get there in in any sport like you're i think the average career span in, in the nfl is like two and a half years or yeah, something it's, like yeah that. it's terrible it's not and so and, and I mean, yeah, the league minimum is, I don't know, 400,000 or what, I don't, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's a decent pay, especially to do what you love to do, but you're not setting yourself up for retirement where you can hit the league. Like everybody sees the Tom Brady's, the LeBron James's, the, you know, these guys that make, that make baller money are marketed really well and can play 10 years in a league and then walk away and just their kids, kids, kids don't ever have to uh, work again. And that's kind of the dream when you think about sports, but the reality is for a high percentage of people that you, you know, you're going to play a couple years in the league and then you re that's it. You're done. Like you've, you've fizzled out because it's rare for, for somebody to be able to continue for a long career. So just the ability to maintain or to, to live that kind of dream where it's like, man, I actually made, like I made really good money, uh, as a professional athlete, when you compare myself to everybody else. Now, when you look at the potential of what happened and, and particularly my popularity at the time, I'm like, ah, I'm not going to complain if somebody wants to add a zero to my paycheck. <laughs> but you know, you get what I'm saying. Well, you know, this, it's funny because you talked about how you really wanted to play American football. Um, and, but you realized you, you just didn't have it. You couldn't cut out for that. You weren't cut out for that. When did you realize that you were that good at MMA? Like, when did you realize that you were levels apart from other people? Oh, I, you know what? I think, um, to be honest, I don't, I don't think I ever, <laughs> I didn't realize it at first. I think like you start, you just kind of go through the motions. I'll, t I'll tell you a couple stories. So 
Monty Cox was my, my fight manager and any, any of the listeners are not familiar with Monty Cox and in the heyday, like back at, at that time in the UFC, like Monty was managing like six, like managed like six or seven. Like he, he at one point in time had all the, the UFC champions um, under like, like current UFC champions, the entire roster of champions. He was managing, managing the entire Militich camp, managed me, uh, you know, guys like Robbie Lawler and, and I'm, the names, the, the number of people that he's managed that are well-known fighters are just, it's unbelievable. And I was having a conversation with him when I was still teaching. And I, I you know, I thought, man, I'm, I'm thinking about like, retiring from teaching or at least, you know, leaving, I, I thought maybe I might leave for a couple of years or whatever and, and give this a shot, like give, you know, give this dream a shot. And he just said to me, yeah, he's like, look, there, there are no part-time world champions. Like it just doesn't happen. You got to commit to it fully. And I'm like, okay. So I, I think me taking this leap was a little bit of me just being young and naive and knowing like, I, I mean, also I had earned my master's degree. So if any point in time I wanted to go back to teaching, I could. Uh, but I remember, I don't know if you remember back in the um, early to mid 2000s, there was, uh, you remember the, the brand Full Contact Fighter, they had a show on television at night, like a, some cable show, like a 900 channel, it was like MMA hour, I don't remember the name of the show, mm-hmm. it may have been Full Contact Fighter. But Joel Gold, I can specifically remember one time after I had a match with Gary Myers in Evansville, Indiana. And this was one of those, those, those pivotal fights for me that kind of turned everybody's head because Gary at the time was a veteran of the UFC. And I came, I came home and this show came on and they kind of, it was like a once a month show and they would analyze like all the MMA matches that had gone on for the month. And they had, they had featured this match with me. And I remember listening to him talk about the, the show and he was like, look, man, he's like this kid, keep an eye on him because he's going places. And I remember watching that and thinking like, whoa, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not just doing this as a hobby for myself anymore. There are actually people watching me. And, and this guy said, I'm good. And, and I, I got, I got really scared. Like I actually contemplated, like, maybe I'm just done. I like, I don't, I don't want that kind of pressure. I, I, just, I was like, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not what I wanted to do here. I just wanted to do something for fun. And, and so the whole time, like, I know, like from the time I stepped into the cage at, uh, as a, as an amateur, that I was the level up from the guy in front of me, obviously. I mean, my chance, I mean, you always have a chance of running into another future world champion, but I mean, think about it. The first guy who ever fought me didn't know that I was going to be a future champion of the sport, right? Like he didn't know the level of talent that I was at that time, right. but I don't think I really realized it either. And then when I started looking my direction, like, Hey, take notice. Cause this kid's going somewhere. I was suddenly like, wait a minute, am I, am I that good? Am I as good as the hype? And that suddenly this little bit of fear set in. And I really, I I remember thinking like, I don't know if I want this kind of pressure. Obviously history is what it is. And I didn't walk away, but you know, then it's just like, I I don't know. I, I never really, I don't know if I ever had this moment where I'm like, Oh man, I am that good. And I believed in myself type of thing. Or if I just, I think really, my mindset was I'm just going to go in the gym and do the work that I need to do, make myself better every single day. And winning, I never had huge celebrations when I won. There were a couple of times I got pretty excited. Uh, but typically, like if you saw me after a fight, I would just walk across the ring, kind of held my arms out like, eh, this is what I did. But it, winning was an expectation for me because I, I put in the work and I knew that if I put in the work that I, the, I should yield the results that I wanted. Like it was, it was a mentality of do the work and you will win. So every time I won, I didn't have these emotional highs like, yes, yes, I'm the best. Uh, but when I lost, 
man, I had to face the man in the mirror who was my, who was my worst critic. And the emotional lows off of a loss were, were way worse than the emotional highs off of a win because the win was just expected. Did you ever get depressed at all after a loss? Like, was that something that ever hit you at all or no? I mean, yeah. Was, uh, but, I mean, you just got to be careful about the way you use the word depressed. I think everybody is depressed whether that moment of depression lasts during the post-fight interview, uh, during the ensuing weekend, or until you avenge that loss or whatever. Like, you know, you're, you're, you're going to sit and reflect and ask yourself, like, man, how did this happen and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I, I tell this story frequently. The night that I lost my title, uh, and just to go back – the night that I won my title, uh, we were, I was in New Jersey, Atlantic City, and we were at, uh, at Trump. We, we fought at uh, the arena there, and we were staying at the Trump Plaza. And after, after the match, I could go back to my hotel room, and I was there with a small group of uh, people. And, you know, the, my, my, my wife was there, my coaches, and I remember setting my belt on the bed, and I looked at everybody. There was just like four or five of us in the room, and I said, man, I don't feel like a champion. Like, Cause nothing had changed. Right. Five hours prior, like I went over to the arena and I didn't have this belt. And then all I did was, you know, did this little song and dance for a few minutes. And then I come back with a belt and really there's no difference in who I am. Like I'm the same guy. Uh, but you know, you fast forward to the night that I lost my title to Anderson Silva in Las Vegas. And I went back to my hotel room that night and I sat there just motionless watching the, the traffic up and down the I five from my, from my hotel room and just asking myself, man, how, how did this happen? How did you get here? Like that kind of like, I can't, I can't even, I couldn't even ask the next question. I didn't know. And the emotional low from that was really like tough. And so, you know, I don't know if you ever listened to my Ted talk, but it's, it's actually, I'm, this sounds kind of pompous, but it's, it's a nice <laughs> TED talk. Um, it's it, the, the title of the Ted talk is how to be a loser. And one of the, the point of the talk is like when you're a kid growing up, the two pieces of advice you get is, um, is that winning isn't everything and it's not whether you win or lose, but it's how you play the game. And it's great. Like these are great things to keep in mind until you actually lose. And innately, when, even hearing that as a kid, like it, it's, it's, it doesn't matter if you win or lose, it's how you play the game. Like every time you lost, you're still like, man, this sucks. And it never goes away. I, Every time I've ever lost a match in, in my professional career, I never said, well, you know, it's really, I mean, it's, it's not whether I win or lose. It's how I played the game. Well, quite frankly, uh, if you lose a match, you're not playing the game the way that you wanted to to begin with. Um, and so the whole talk is about like learning when you lose, you have to have these tools in your toolbox to deal with a loss. And you need to be able to, and I, I talk about this in the talk, but you need to be able to go back through a loss, whatever that is in your life. Like it could be the loss of a loved one, the loss of a competition, you're not getting a job, uh, whatever. And you need to be able to assess like, okay, what was this failure in my life? How did this happen? And what useful information can I extract from this? And I need to be able to take that useful information and, and assess it to how I can improve and productively move forward. But the rest of this information that's not useful, it ends up becoming emotional baggage, like a ball and chain that's just tied to your leg is going to slow you down. And you have to be able to get good at discarding that stuff. Because otherwise, if you think about it, those are the things that are going to spin you into depression. Those are the things that are going to, to make you think about you know, all like focusing on the loss rather than how I'm going to improve from it. And so having a career like mine, it really 
it, it really makes you hone in on the skills that you need for something like that. So in the future, as you begin, like, you know, when, when you lose or you don't succeed at something or whatever it may be, you have these tools to be like, okay, I've been here before. So let me figure out what I can learn from this situation and move forward with it and get rid of the rest of this crap. So it's not emotionally just dragging me down. I mean, not for nothing, Rich, but in, in a day like today, like, I mean, it's literally been, I think, a year from when, like, the NBA closed down. And that, yeah. that's really when, like, everything really closed down in the States and stuff like that. Near me, like, New York and stuff like that, we all started shutting down. So you talk about the, the levels of depression and stuff like that. Like, those words that you gave just now were incredible because a lot of people are going through crazy times right now and still can't figure out how to, like, maintain whether it's job loss, whether it's a loss of a loved one. I mean, we basically all lost something during this time, whether it's just even career-wise, like, you know, I, we could have excelled a little bit differently, but, you know, people's like livelihoods are being destroyed. So it's just interesting to take that in and take that approach for sure. So I appreciate you sharing that, man. Yeah. The, and, and I'll say this, this situation is different. You know, for me, the example that I just gave was a loss. Like this thing is in the past. So I'm assessing something that's in the past. We're in a current situation where it, it's, it's never ending it, seemingly, right? I mean, people right. that have lost their jobs, are still in an economy where getting a new job is very, very difficult. And, you know, I, I said this, um, I, I tell this story all the time, like for a lot of people in this world, for a lot of Americans, this, this pandemic has become just really, and I'm going to say this from a financial perspective, a bit of a, a, an inconvenience. You know, I'm on a side of a planet where I see developing nations and I see migrant workers. I know there are migrant workers here that were, because of clusters, of the uh, of the virus <clears throat> they were in dormitories and these dormitories were locked down like they couldn't leave for six months and the, the, they've been locked out of their country they weren't able to go back to work they weren't able to get back to their families they weren't able to send money home for food and these are these are migrant workers from developing nations so it's like the there there are stories of like true like truly truly malnutrition and people dying and stuff like that on on the other side of the planet so when I see, and I, and I kind of make these snide comments sometimes, like for a lot of people in the U.S., not everybody, because, you know, I grew up poor. I know what it's like. But for a lot of people in the U.S., like this becomes an inconvenience. Like, how am I going to make my next car payment type of thing? Th like, that's the reality of it. It's like, no, how am I going to put bread in my mouth tonight is okay. a completely different situation. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, but this is a whole different thing. Um, and, you know, I'll say this, that the, the mindset or the, the tools that you have to have in order to be able to deal with something like this, I think for me, I, when I was over here, I happened to be on this side of the planet during the initial lockdown phase. And so I spent essentially six weeks in isolation by myself because I live alone. And when you're, when, you know, in Singapore, you can't, you, you weren't allowed to be at an address where you were not registered to live. And so I couldn't like travel to a friend's house and have lunch or anything like that. And so I was essentially just stuck here. Now I could leave my home. I could go for a jog. I could ride my bicycle, but nonetheless, it's still, that's tough, right? I mean, you're sitting here oh, yeah. by yourself. So, you know, that's, but it's one of those things where you have to truly really assess like what's important to you in life. I mean, when you think about it, what, what it is that motivates you to as a person to, I'll say to live, that sounds a little cliche, but are you extrinsically motivated by things? Or are you intrinsically motivated by things? For me personally, I fell heavily upon my faith. Like there are times, and I say this to people all the time, there are times when I'm alone, but I'm never lonely because I have Jesus with me all the time. And, you know, I can sit and it, it sounds funny, but like, I mean, I have my Bible right here and I spend time in that book every single day. And when you tell people like, I enjoy reading the Bible, they look at you like you got two heads, like what? 
like who enjoys like what? And I'm like, man, I can lose myself in this book. I can lose myself talking to him. So it's like, I might be alone, but I'm never lonely. And <clears throat> whatever it is for you, maybe that's not you. But what I, I would suggest that you should try to make it you, but whatever, <laughs> whatever it is for you, you know, it's like when you have that kind of mentality, <clears throat> I can, as, as long as I got this book and as long as I got some time to talk and everything, like it really does give me clarity in life. It really does like, um, you know, break up that time where if I'm going to hit a depressive state or something like that, I can leave everything behind. It's like the equivalent of, you know what? I just want to like sit down on my couch, the average American. I just want to sit down on my couch, have a beer, watch a movie and not think about everything that's going on in the world. And this does this for me, but in a productive kind of way, because it helps, it helps me not just forget about what's going on, but it gives me clarity about things that are going on. So, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I have when I'm in a situation where I'm, I'm currently dealing with this stuff, but I'll say this, that being the kind of athlete that I, that I have been, like I've been in tough situations before where like, you know, you've been dropped in a fight and you have to work your way out of this hole. Right. And so you develop this mentality through this skill set of, of being like, man, I've been, I've been down and out before, you know, don't call it a comeback, you know, <laughs> right. Like I'm quoting LL Cool J there. And so, you know, you, you develop the skill set for that kind of stuff. Like it's crazy when I sit and think about, I like, I have a skill set for that kind of mentality. I have a skill set for dealing with a lot of chaos in my life because that's what ends up happening in the moment that that bell rings, right? Like you learn this skill set so that when things start coming at you, you're kind of like, ah, that's, that's no big, that's no big, that's no big. I got this. I got that. And, uh, and those are important skills to have. And, and the problem that you have is that most people live in their comfort zone most of their life, right? Like every, everybody spends 90, dare I say, most people in this world spend 99% of their life in their comfort zone. They eat what they want. They wake up when they want, they go to bed when they want, they whatever, right? Like most people don't know. And it's like, oh, well, I, you know, I have to get up early for work, but it's like, do you really understand like true sacrifice? Like, do you understand what it means to really take yourself out of your comfort zone? Every time I competed, I used to stand in that locker room ready to piss myself because I was so, so afraid, like getting ready to walk out. And, and, and after my hand got raised, it's like, all right, let's do this again. Knowing that the moment that I got back to that locker room, be it a month, two months, three months, how many, ever many months later, I was going to be standing in that locker room going, God, why did I do this so much? Why? Like, <laughs> why? And, uh, and, but you do like you as an athlete, you do. And so when you're willing to take yourself out of your comfort zone that much, it gives you the ability to deal with things in a different kind of way than most people. Rich, uh, you know, it's funny because my father, first of all, will love you because he's been trying to, to preach to me forever. He's a big, he's very religious, but Catholic. And he's always told me like, you know, just pray, just, you know, go to church, do this. When did that, when did you start? When did that take over? When did you start in your life to really look into the Bible? Oh, well, you know, first of all, I'm not a religious man. Um, people, you know, people think like people think about religion and religion can be very divisive, by the way. Uh, I, and I'll say this just because we, this word, like, I think Jesus was the most anti-religious person to ever walk this planet, truly, because that's what he did on the time that he was on earth. Like he challenged the status quo of religion at that time. Don't forget, man, Jesus was Jewish, right? right. He challenged the entire Jewish system. He basically came on, on, on the scene and was like, look, the way that you guys are doing this is, is wrong. It's not like you're, you're trying to live by this set of rules just because the rules is the set of rules. It's like, it's about the intent that's in your heart. And, but you know, there was this fixation on the rules at the time. And so I, I fortunately was, you know, I grew up in a, in a, in a Christian home 
And my parents divorced when I was a young kid. And <clears throat> when my father got remarried, he actually remarried the daughter of the preacher at the church that we attended. And so my, this, this man, I, I call my grandfather, who was, who was a preacher, was really a strong influence on my life because I lived the kind of lifestyle that, you know, single mom, I stayed with, my, you know, typical custody situation. I stayed with my mom. She was working 90 hour weeks just to put bread on the table. We, you know, we, at some point in time, like we had government subsidized lunches at school and food stamps and all that kind of stuff. Like this is the house that I grew up in. But my mom had that mentality, like, man, we're not going to depend on the system. I'm going to work my butt off and we're going to get out of this system. And I, and I pride myself on being able to escape that. I made a post recently about this. Uh, you can check these two posts out on my Instagram about this cage lion versus this free lion. And then I did a follow-up post to it with this, this elephant. It's crazy how people put words in your mouth. But the point that I was making on this post is like, I, I thank God every day that I had these, that I had the, the help that I needed to get out of that situation. But I also thank God that I didn't have the uh, mentality of saying like, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to take this free handout and I'm going to be happy with that because life can offer you so much more if you're willing to put in that hard work. And, um, but you know, my grandfather kept me out of a lot of trouble growing up. And then when I got into college, I was introduced to a lot of different things, a lot of different thought processes, philosophies, you know, Eastern religions, things like that. And so I, I met a lot of people in university that really made me question my faith. So in my, my late teens, early 20s, I really started kind of questioning things and, and really started deep diving into why I believe what I believe. And you find that a lot of people in this world, like the, the, uh, the, the Christian faith, or I should say a relationship with the Lord is heavily dependent on um, your faith, like you having faith. I, you know, I cannot 100% prove God is there, otherwise it requires no faith. And we can get in a deep philosophical discussion about that. Um, but it requires a lot of faith, but I find that people in this world have blind faith and it doesn't matter whether you're Christian, if you are from another faith like Muslim or, you know, whatever Buddhist, it doesn't matter. Uh, or whether you believe in like, for example, like science in this modern world, right? Like people blindly believe things that they're told. We're all guilty of it. We all have, suffer from things like cognitive dissonance and whatnot. And so I went on this kind of personal crusade of saying like, why do I believe in the things that I believe in? And really, really kind of studying, uh, studying that stuff. There's a great example of this is a guy by the name of Lee Strobel. He wrote a book called A Case for Christ. And Lee was a journalist. He was an atheist. And he was basically like saying like, what happened was, it's been a while since I've read this, but his wife, I think, got involved with a Christian group and, and came to accept Christ as her savior. And then Lee pretty much was like, he was an atheist and he thought like, well, this is going to ruin my marriage. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go out and I'm going to, as a journalist, I'm going to research this and I'm going to disprove God to her and I'm going to save my marriage. And then in the whole process, he ended up like kind of coming to the conclusion, like, I can't, I, I can't like... It, I can't disprove this. And I, you know, linking another book in is like, look, it takes faith to be a Christian, but if you like, it takes even more faith to not believe in God. And so I kind of went through the same process in my personal life. And I just kind of came to the conclusion that I came to. And, uh, and so, you know, I've, I've uh, had a relationship ever since. So I don't have religion. I just have a relationship, my man. And so anytime That's I'm awesome. down, anytime I'm out, like I spend time in the word, I spend time talking to him. I look to him for advice and, and uh, even when I screw things up, I'm like, hey, help me out here. Like, I'm, I'm my own worst enemy at times. But you said something that's very interesting. You said that, like, Jesus, for example, like, he was, a Jew, was Jewish and he kind of said, you know, let's, let's change something. Let's do something different, like, because this is not right or whatever, whatever he said. Mm -hmm. It's funny because today is 
era. Like the the youth is is just so different from like I mean that's part of getting old. That's that's part of ch- changing and part of culture. But I mean we're just kids now are just so different. And the technology, it's how is this a good change? You think? Do you think that we're that society is going in a in a wrong direction? I mean, what do you think? Oh well, listen. You you know, like you said, we're getting older, right? And so. I thought about this. <clears throat> technology, technology is changing the, the face of humanity. And I look at my father and I look at me generationally. The, I'm a Gen Xer. So I'm the, I'm the last generation probably of people that knew what, and this is going to sound funny, but that knew what the pre-internet world was like, truly. Mm-hmm. To sit down at dinner and have a conversation and be like, oh my gosh, hold on, man. What was the name of that movie? What was the name of that movie? Oh, uh, I, I don't know. I, I can't, I can't for the life of me. I can't remember. And guess what? The conversation goes on just not knowing the name of the movie. Why? Because we didn't have this little thing and we didn't have, <laughs> we didn't have Google to be like, hold on, let me get the name of that movie real quick. And then, you know, you have enough search terms that you can get to actually figure out the name of that movie. That's something little. How about this? Taking a hike and not actually having a phone on you in case you fell and twisted an ankle to call 911. Like suddenly I'm going to go take a hike in the middle of this, this uh, canvas ravine in these mountains. And if I fall and twist my ankle and I'm by myself, I could die. (laughs) Wow. And today's world is uncomfortable with that, right? Like it's like, to me, I'm like, man, the moment I can shut my phone off, like I'm going to try to drive from point A to point B without a GPS. What? What? Are you kidding me? Like, I like to pride myself on knowing that I have a good sense of direction and using it. And if I make a couple wrong turns, then so be it. But um, I was thinking about my father's generation compared to my generation. And yeah, there's obviously technology advances, but growing up as a kid, like, for example, my dad, they had one TV in the house when my dad was a kid, I'm sure. And my dad had a stereo in his room. And I'm sure like there was times when he was like a teenager sitting around listening to the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or Jimi Hendrix with his headphones on. Right. right. And, uh, and, and, you know, he had at that time they had records, but when I was a kid, like we had cassette tapes, it was the same. Um, I probably came from the, 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 the beginning of the gaming generation, you know, Atari that eventually morphed into Nintendo that eventually become what the modern gaming generation is. But I didn't spend much time game, like playing games as a kid. I did have a Nintendo. I did conquer Mario Bros. Super Mario brothers. So, <laughs> you know, but the life, like my life and my dad's life were probably very similar. Like my dad on Saturday afternoons was probably going outside and playing with his friends and, you know, playing backyard football pickup games and whatever and riding his bicycle. And I lived the similar kind of life when I was a kid. My, the summer between my sophomore and junior year, I actually moved schools and I moved from uh, Kentucky to Ohio. It was about, about a 30 minute drive between the two, 25 to 30 minutes. But there was no Facebook. I couldn't just update my Facebook. I grew up in a time where if I wanted to call a friend, like ring, 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 hey, you know, hey, Miss Hoffman, is Pete, is Pete home? No, he's not home right now. Okay, can you tell him Rich called? Okay, I'll have him call you back. Like that was life back then. So when I moved, I would have had to pick up the phone and call every single friend that I had, which was only maybe a dozen at the time. Now people on Facebook, they have so many friends like, People on Facebook, even unpopular Facebook people are way more popular than I was as a, as a junior high kid because I just didn't have those options. And so the world was a lot different. And I look at how my father grew up, like what I presume it was like for him and what I presume it was like for me. And I don't think the difference was that much. 
you know, at least not particularly for me as a child. Cause like I said, I didn't take advantage of having the games and all that. There was a little bit of that time. I probably consumed a, a bit more TV than my dad did. Cause they only had like three stations when he was right, a kid. Yeah. But realistically, like the style of life wasn't that much different. But then when I look at my childhood and compared to like the zillennials of today, it's way different. Like it's so much different with all this, this technology and how connected we are and to be disconnected is it's unbelievable. Like the thought of you turning off your phone and somebody not being able to immediately get a hold of you or, or whatever, like I have, I'll have friends that call me. It's like, man, you know, I tried reaching you yesterday. Like, it's like, yeah, I I turned my phone off. Like (laughs) what? I feel like uh, Agent Smith from the, Matrix, uh, from the Matrix when he took that little earplug out of his ear. And that's kind of the expectation now. And so these kids grow up in this environment where every, it's, it's, um, it's a community environment, but you don't know the people of your community, not truly know the people of your community. Like you wouldn't, the, you know, these people that nowadays they have these like Facebook and they'll put things on Facebook, like they share things with people. And it's like, this is really way more private than you realize. And they're like, Oh, but you know, these people are my friends, even if it's a private page, it's like, yeah, but would, would you give this person your bank account number and your password? Would you, you know, would you allow them to read your private emails and stuff like that? Because that's kind of the, the, the community mentality that we live in now. So, I, I mean, for me, when you ask me like, do I think the world is headed in a way it shouldn't be? I'm, yeah. I mean, I, I like being disconnected. I prefer it. I like the thought of like getting in my car, taking a road trip, not having a GPS, not knowing where I'm going and just figuring it out as I go. But that's not how the modern world likes to operate. Um, And so, you know, the way I see things, like I have less anonymity, less privacy, less autonomy, whatever you want to throw in there because we're controlled by modern technology. But that's just the way that I look at things. When you, if you were to ask a zillennial, the, uh, the same question, I mean, God forbid they had to go 15 minutes without their TikTok uh, uh, when they have s- some downtime. But they, and, and I think that that's, that that's part of the problem is that like people nowadays have to constantly be um, distracted. You can't yeah. you just be in the moment. You can't have a genuine conversation without thinking like, oh, let me check this or let me update that or whatever. And so, yeah, I mean, for, for me, I, I view it as a negative, but that's just people getting old and my dad saw my generation and viewed a lot of things as a negative and that's just how it goes man we uh you know it's funny because my, my wife by the way is very much like like you she wants to get rid of the phone she wants to move upstate she wants to move to maine she wants to be near the the ocean she just wants to be cut off from everything um but the kids we have kids and they're all like all about like impulse instant gratification stuff like that and we watched a lot of documentaries and we, we actually wanted the kids to watch the documentaries because you could see how like the social media like they, so people software techs that built the social media said that they built these these algorithms that they didn't realize what they were doing was going to be so prominent and was going to be such a mistake. Like the way that they were able, like, I mean, it's the, the impulse. You have to go to your phone every day on a daily basis. It's ridiculous. Well, they, and they, they built them that way. Um, what, what was that documentary? The, the, it wasn't the Cambridge analytical one, but I was watching one uh, about Facebook. What, what, it was on Netflix, right? I, I can't remember what it was called, but my, but anyway, they talked, they talked about that and they talked about how it was written within a, like the, so that it would be, addictive and when you go into these things like you kind of get that hit of dopamine like you would as if you were using a, ju- a drug so yeah. it you know you become dependent on that kind of thing and look it's it's the same for everybody I'm, I'm used to having this phone on me so it it gives you the ability of convenience like it's nice for me to be able to check an email 
like maybe I'm going to check some emails before I go to bed at night, right? So 11 o'clock at night, I want to check my emails real quick. And that for me gives me peace of mind because I can say, ah, you know what, I've cleared out any business that would have come in from a different time zone overnight. So tomorrow when I wake up, I can wake up relaxed. I can make my breakfast. I don't have to connect to this phone right away, whatever. But that, you know, that, that there's a fine balance there. And I'm, I'm the same way. Like other than, other than businessmen, I mean, I literally, I could get rid of that phone. And like everybody else, when you pull this phone out of my hand, there's so many things that, that come attached to the phone. It's my, it's my video recorder. Like if I, there's some genuine moment, like I'm singing happy birthday to my mom, like, Oh, Hey, let me, let me get this on film real quick. Like, you know, it's uh it's how I check my, my crypto accounts. It's how I check my stocks. It's how I check my email. It's how I text my friends, you know, how uh, my brother, like when on this side of the planet, my brother can just send me a quick pick. Like, he, he just got a new dog and he's got like, he's got this uh, Newfoundland and it's huge. And like, yeah. in, in like four weeks, this thing's tripped, literally tripled in size. It's crazy. And so he sent me like a picture and then a picture four weeks later, but you know, without this phone, I can't get that, those kinds of things. So there are a lot of benefits to this, but man, the moment you pull that thing out of your hand, the first there, cause there's been times where I've lo- left my, my phone in a cab. Oh man. Like, Anybody who's ever done that, like you're immediately like, oh, but now we're getting to the point where leaving your phone in your cab isn't just, I mean, it's a breach of privacy to the point where I have my credit cards on here, I, you know, all my financial information. So losing this thing, it can truly be detrimental to you, you know, not just from like, oh, well, you know, I have texts and whatnot. Like, so we're still losing a wallet, dude. Oh, absolutely. It is my, it is, my, it is my wallet, right? Not only that, but like it, you have access, like on my phone, I have access to be able to just go into my bank. And withdraw money, transfer money, buy stocks. Like you can do all this stuff from your phone. But the moment that I take this thing out of my hand and it's, it's almost like a, like a detox period, it takes several days. But once you get rid of it, you do realize like, man, your brain kind of slows down. Like, what am I going to do to fill the time? Well, I can read this book. I mean, fortunately, I still actually like reading books that are on paper uh, because I came from that generation when paper still existed, you know, um, or I can uh, play a game of Scrabble wow, that's, that's a concept. Like actually playing a real board game or something like I that. I try to teach the kids chess. I want them to, to learn chess. They're too busy playing Among Us and all those other nonsense games. Dude, I want to teach them chess. They, there's an app. You can get the chess app. You, <laughs> you don't need the actual board, man. Come on. You just got to give them times, right? No, I got the hard pieces. We need to go back to the old school. Come on, dude. They'll, they'll play checkers, though. They will play checkers. They haven't downloaded the app for that yet. That's because checkers is a, is a, is a one move ahead kind of game. Not really. If you, like, if you play somebody as good at checkers, they're thinking ahead, but you know, checkers is a one move ahead kind of game where chess is a, you know, you have to think out the entire strategy front to front to back. And it takes too much. It's, it's too much thought process. Like, ah, that's, it's way too much energy, man. I got it. This is my day off. <laughs> well, listen, you know, it's, it's funny because you talk about, you talk about, uh, we talk about checkers and chess and stuff like that. MMA, getting back to the fight games, stuff like that, just because I've watched some amazing fights over the years, and we've seen some some quote-unquote duds. Um, like this weekend, for example, at UFC, Israel Adesanya versus Jan Blachowicz wasn't the best fight, but to some people's standards. Uh, but if you watched it, like it was a smart fight by Blachowicz to take Israel Adesanya down to the, to the ground and wrestle because that's where he was going to win the fight. And, and, like, you watch a fight like uh, Steve Wonderboy Thompson versus um, Tyron Woodley where for five rounds they didn't do much, but when they attacked, it was, it, it was impressive and explosive and you were just never knew who was going to get knocked out. And I t- tell my friends, I'm like, those are the fights that are the biggest chess matches. Like, because oh, anything, anything can happen at any time and you just don't know. It's, just, it's so explosive. But it's hard to convince people that. <laughs> 
No, I mean, look, <clears throat> I think the most exciting match I've ever seen live was, um, you know, Matt, Matt Hughes was a friend of mine, and when he fought Frank Trigg, Mm. And they had the uh, the rematch when um, Hughes got kneed in the groin. Have you seen this fight? I've watched basically every single fight possible. So you, like, um, I was sitting cage side, and this is probably, I mean, the, the energy in the audience is, I think this is probably the greatest sporting event I've ever been to. And, um, and you know, so Trigg uh, knees Matt, and it's, he hits him in the groin, and the ref doesn't see it. Matt goes down, Trigg follows up. Has him in a rear naked choke, almost finishes the match. Right, right. Matt works his way out of it, picks this guy up, walks him completely across the cage, which was like his, you know, signature thing. Slams him down in front yeah. of the corner of his own corner, and then ends up like finishing the match with a rear naked choke. And it was just when he picked him up and walked across the cage, the the arena erupted, man. And it was that's an exciting match. And this is the kind of stuff that the average fan wants to see because they don't understand the, the fight game at a, at a level, at a higher level, right? <clears throat> and so for somebody like myself who can sit and look at little nuances of footwork and how people are angling in and out, and even though there's not much going on, or when you watch a grappling match where you, it doesn't seem like a lot is happening, like there's movements, and, but things that are getting negated, and not just somebody sitting in somebody's guard you know, body, body, head, that kind of thing. But like where things are happening, but nobody gets submitted. Like I can watch these things and just, and, and watch these little details. Like, Oh wow. Hold on. How, how did he, like, how did he hit that reversal again? How did he stop this move? That was really well done and pick up on these little things. And I appreciate it at a level of somebody who has studied this stuff um, for the last 30 years, basically, but not everybody does. And so there's this fine line between winning and entertaining right? And, oh, yeah. and I'm probably as an athlete guilty of trying to entertain fans more than uh, just thinking about winning. I remember my Yushin Okami fight when I, after the second round, I came back to my corner. I'm sitting down. I got uh, Rob Radford and Neil Rowe and they, like, they, you know, these are my coaches during my ear. They're like, man, you're doing great. Just keep doing what you're doing. You know, you're winning, winning this match, controlling them with the jab, use your footwork, blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there and, and like, like, like a Charlie Brown character, all I hear is wah, 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 wah. <laughs> and finally, like, you know, towards the end of this, I'm like, you know what? I said, guys, I think I'm going to take him down. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I think I'm going to take him down. And, and Rob, like Rob kind of like, he smacks, he's like, smacks me like, no, he's like stick to the game plan. I'm like, I'm not going to win this way. Cause he was kind of running from me. And, um, and so he said, Rich, stick to the game plan. I was like, okay, fine. I'll stick to the game plan. So I go out there in the first round and in my mind, I was like, I'm not going to try to take him down. Cause I told my coaches that I wouldn't, but, but if the, if the fight ends up on the ground, it's not really my fault. So he and I clinch at the beginning of that, like towards the beginning of that third round. And then I kind of relax. And then he hits me with this trip, boom, puts me on my back. And I'm like, oh, damn. I'm like, now I'm in trouble. <laughs> my coaches are now going bonkers. And I ended up like having to work my way out of this entire bad situation. He had me in this really nasty uh, Kimura lock and uh, wasn't able to finish. I was able to get out. And then ended up like on top at the end of the round. And I was so angry. Like I was trying to just rain down on him with these really hard punches. But I, like I made this mistake because in my mind, I'm like winning the decision wasn't good enough. I wanted to finish him and I wanted to put on a show uh, for the crowd. And 
that has, I mean, this was an example where a match ended up working out in my favor, but I've been guilty of that not working out in my favor before because I'm thinking like, well, no, I just want to press the action. And so you knew when I was stepping in the cage, like win or lose, it was going to be an exciting match for sure. And I don't know that that's necessarily the smartest approach. Do you think that the Anderson Silva fights that you tried to, you, you were trying to approach it too aggressively or what do you think about those two? No, no. You know, the first Anderson fight, I, I would say a big reason why I lost that fight was arrogance. Um, Cause you start getting on a roll. Then you start thinking like, man, as long as I put in the work, I'm going to be like, I'm unstoppable now. Right. Like I, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm, not because I'm arrogant in the sense that like, I think I'm that good, but I'm arrogant in the sense that I put in the work. And it was interesting because I knew that I was physically larger than Anderson, you know, and I thought like, man, I hope he grabs a hold of me and tries to clinch me. Well, we had not, we, we completely neglected any clinch work and not that Anderson is strong, like, you know, physically like this kind of strong, but um, man, the moment that he grabbed hold of me, like he took my balance. And then when I tried working off that, like, you know, getting myself back on balance, he just used my own energy against myself and he kept me off balance the whole time. And so I really like that, that to me, and this is like one of the things that I really kicked myself for because the strategic error I made there was a, a horrible assessment of my opponent. And it's one of the things that I always prided myself on, which is why when you watch the second, um, Silva match, like I was doing really well, actually I was winning that first round up until I got dropped at the end of the round. And then, you know, I always tell people like Anderson, like fighting one of Anderson is really hard. But when you come out in the second round and you're seeing two of him, yeah. it's, like, it's, it gets real tough, real fast type of thing. So, um, but you know, we made, we just, we made the adjustments we needed to make in that second match, but he just, you know, he caught me and um, I mean, you know, he's, he's an amazing fighter and uh, he's uh, he really good at what he does. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of my breakdown on those two matches. When, let me ask you a question. I mean, obviously, we so, see that Anderson Silva beat, beat you those two times, but that doesn't mean he might have been the hardest fighter you've ever fought. Is there someone else that you could compare to? Well, I mean, it depends on how you define hardest. Um, I've, never, I've never been in a match before where, like, where I thought, like, man, this guy is so much stronger than me or this guy hits – so hard where I felt like I was in trouble. I never even felt like I was in trouble with Anderson, like, cause it all happened so quickly. There was not this like demise where midway through I'm like, Oh man, this guy is so much faster than me. It was just like, once we locked up bah, 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 and whatever. And so I will say this, like Chuck, Chuck hits hard, really hard. Um, I mean, man, when he hit me, like he threw that kick and broke my arm, like everything. I, like, I don't know. I don't know if somebody told Chuck that I was, talking about his mom bad or something <laughs> what, like what his problem was there but um he hits really hard Matt Hamill is one of the one of the strongest guys I've ever um ever like like locked horns with and I mean he was just like when we locked up I was like man this guy's really strong I didn't feel like he was like I was outmatched in strength or anything but he was like really strong so when you talk about like the hardest opponent like everybody brings something different to the game right and and so it's it, you, it, my job was basically what I would do. I'm going to get all mathematical on you here. I would set up a matrix, right? Like I would look at my strength and weaknesses versus my opponent's strength and weaknesses. And I would start comparing like, like my coaching staff and I, particularly like Matt, Matt Hume, when I started working with Matt Hume on this stuff, he was, he's amazing. Like they call him the wizard for a reason because he just knows that guy would take four hours to break down a 45 second fight, like in slow motion, frame by frame. And to the point where I would be like, Matt, I, I can't watch film with you anymore, man. Like, just <laughs> give me the download, right? Like, I mean, he's, he's very thorough. And um, 
but yeah, you would, you would, uh, you would assess things and see how things matched up. So everybody brought a different skill set to the table. And so, you know, when you talk about the hardest, it's like, well, my job was to go out and figure out a way to beat them. So I knew, I knew Hamill, for example, was going to be strong. So the game plan wasn't to just sit there and like lock horns with him constantly because I'm not going to play to his strength. Uh, same thing with, with Chuck. Like I knew Chuck hit heavy. So, you know, my plan wasn't to just stand in front of him, but clearly I did when he launched that kick. So, but, <laughs> Either way, you know, it's all about setting up your strategy. And that's one of the things that made me effective as an athlete. I'm not, I'm still, I'm not the biggest athlete. Like, I mean, I was a, well, for 185, I was actually probably one of the bigger fighters at the time, but, but I was never like the, the strongest or the fastest or the most explosive. Um, but I was definitely very cerebral and I always game planned and I had, and I had a good mixture of these tools. Like I, I wasn't the most explosive athlete but I had a good mixture of explosiveness and endurance combined. And so I learned how to play with these two tools, for example, to benefit me the most. And I had this style, this like very grinding style of wearing people down. And so you got to learn how to play to your strengths and play away from the strengths of your opponent. And that's what I did well. So when you ask about the hardest, it's like, well, I can, I can give you the, the, I guess the, the problem or the, the puzzle that each individual fighter pro proposed to me and what we had to do to figure that kind of stuff out uh rich i could talk to you forever i really can you're fantastic I'm an interesting guy i get it you know dude <laughs> i i do have to get you back on again because i so i'm friends with um a, a, a guy in baseball mlb jan gomes he plays for the washington nationals and i've been telling him like I'm, I'm building like this big community. So like you're in Singapore doing this. I'm over here trying to build like a different type of podcast where I'm getting all athletes, whether they're baseball players, football players, NHL, NBA, everybody is coming on. We're kind of doing like a little round table. It's like a fan friendly thing, but like we've built some like really cool relationships and I've connected the fighters to the, the players too. And it's been really good dialogue, really good conversation. I told him you were coming on and he was like, I have to talk to him, but I'd like to do it another time just because your schedule didn't work out. Is this going to be a co-host with you on this thing? Uh, it's it's kind of like a rotating co-host type of thing, but he he kind of would like to be. Yeah, he wa he wants yeah. to jump into it, man. Look, we can do this. We can do this again in the future. I have fun talking, man. So it was awesome. We, listen, I, you know, one of the things like I, what I don't want to do, cause you talk about like loving uh, MMA. Like I do love MMA. I, like I love the sport. I love, I love martial arts. I love training. I mean, that's the reason why I got into this, but I'm not the guy who wants to sit around and like breaking down fights and who right. would you thought this and that. Like, it's like, this is what I do for a living. So, you know, we touch a little bit on that in this conversation. We touch a little bit on my faith. We touch a little bit on winning philosophies. We touch a little bit on what I do for a living. We touch a little bit on whatever. And, and that, so it's a fun conversation, man. So I had a great time. Would, would love to chat with you again. So you let me know when, and uh, we'll get back on it at some point. And quite Franklin, which is awesome. I love the premise. You have some awesome guests. Elizabeth Smart. How was that conversation? Yeah. It was great, man. I, I, I've had some, I've had some great guests and I have one, I think the next one I'm going to drop, I think the next one is this woman who, um, you know, speaking of Elizabeth Smart, it was a woman, she was an Indonesian woman who worked at, in the financial industry in Indonesia and they had a crisis back in the late nineties. And she answered an ad that was in a newspaper that was legitimate or she thought was uh, to work in the United States as a seasonal worker. And I mean, when you're in Indonesia, like when you understand the level of poverty and how people are attracted to coming to the States, you can understand how these things have happened. Plus 
culturally they don't understand what's going on but nonetheless she got she got picked up at jfk airport and within the time of landing was was trafficked into a into a human trafficking situation where she was brought into a, a brothel and i asked oh, her geez. on the podcast like how long from the time you landed to the time you serviced your first customer and she said about six hours and and so her story of how she ended up in this this uh this this system and how she escaped from it but going back to elizabeth smart you know her her abduction was a bit different it wasn't you know she wasn't abducted for trafficking purposes she was just abducted by somebody who was just going to spend the next nine months basically raping her every day but to sit down and have a conversation with her and just you know everything from that experience to how it applied to her for life and great lessons by both women um the elizabeth or the uh chandra her name is chandra will run to will run to and um like lessons on things like forgiveness and stuff like that man it's um it's, it's just, uh, man. And, you know, I said to, I said to Chandra, like one of the things I posted on my Instagram, on my social media was, uh, about when Brant Jean had forgiven Amanda Geiger. I don't know if you saw that the court case when Amanda Geiger, the shot, his brother, when he came into the apartment, right. Right. And the court was like, I just want to give her a hug. And he, and he actually, he, he actually witnessed her about Christ. It was crazy. And the, just the level of forgiveness, I sit, I look at people like that and I look at Chandra's story that will we'll drop next week. Um, and I just think, man, like I, 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 like, I wish I was capable of that kind of forgiveness. I don't want to go through those experiences in life, like what, what Elizabeth went through or what Chandra went through. But man, that's just a lesson can be learned um, uh, from people like that. You know, I was out riding my bicycle this morning and I was on the road and this car cut me off. So as the car cut me off, I, I like, like he cut me off. I almost actually rode into his car. So when I like hit my brakes and kind of smacked the side of his car and, and I, I know I scared the driver and he looks at me and I'm looking like, what's your problem, man? Like I have lack of forgiveness. If you cut me off on the road, I can't imagine like if you actually abducted me and held me captive for nine months, like my level of forgiveness is negative. I think I have a story for you, but it's, it's, it's a family tragedy and it's, it's, my aunt eventually forgave the person who murdered her, hit her kids. And it was, it's crazy. And I to store it for you for another day because uh, mm-hmm. it's just been too long. But, but honestly, like, I, I don't mind sharing it with you because it's, 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 it's crazy. The fact that she could forgive somebody for that is just, well, listen, you know, I'll say this, and this is, this is what you learn from people that are in these situations that, that forgive. Like when they're in these really high emotional situations, it's like, when you don't, you, you're never going to forget something. Like it's never going to happen. But when you don't forgive, you're holding on to this negative emotional energy and it changes you as a person. It will, it will change you. And so you can either become this person that you may not want to become and not even realize you're becoming that person. Or at some point in time, a painful thing is like, you've got, you're going to have to, you're going to have to exercise that forgiveness. And this is not me speaking from experience on something at that level, but it's me speaking from the experience of talking to people who have done it on that kind of level. I hope I'm never actually faced with that kind of thing in my life. But um, if I ever was, I hope that I'm also capable of that because I don't, I don't want to walk around as a bitter person the rest of my life either. You know? No, I get that, man. Rich, listen, I appreciate you being generous with your time, man. I appreciate it. And please, uh, I'd love to have it, have you on again. And again, quite Franklin, check it out. Anything else you want to promote before we, before we hear? Um, no, you know, you can, um, I, I'll say this, uh, just on this side of the planet, one championship's coming to TNT in April. Yeah, we're, yeah. We're doing 
those. So check those out. Um, I, I, I'm going to be careful here because I can't remember what we've actually announced and what we haven't, but uh, Demetrius Johnson. Tell us, tell us everything. I'm not, I'm not doing it, man, because I can't, I can't remember. I was thinking about that this morning. I'm like, God, if he starts asking me a bunch of questions, I'm going to have to plead the fifth on this. Uh, <laughs> even though I'm in Singapore, I'm still protected by my U.S. rights. So I'm pleading the fifth. But no, Demetrius Johnson is going to be headlining card. Uh, Eddie Alvarez is going to be competing as well. So some good, there's going to be some good fights in April. And, uh, and plus, like, they're going to have really good-looking commentators. This there you go. Ah. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, but other than that, man, um, no, you can catch, you can catch my podcast. At, like, I'm new at this so with the podcast thing, so I'm just having fun with it. I like having awesome conversations uh, with people that, you know, that make you at least think, see life from their perspective, inspire you, educate you, whatever. It's, it's a variety show, and I have a ton of different guests. I just recently – this hasn't dropped yet, but I, I just recently interviewed a, a gentleman who infiltrated the inner circle of the Hells Angels as an undercover ATF agent. Previously had on um, um, a guy named Jack Garcia who worked undercover to infiltrate the uh, Gambino crime family in oh New York. Oh, my God. Let's go. Oh, have, you, have you not listened to that? I have not yet, but I have to now. Hey, listen, Pete, go, go listen to the uh, Jack Garcia. I think it's episode number five. Okay. Go listen. It's, it's I could listen to this guy talk for days, man, for real. And like he would, he would be a, a good podcast guest. But his book, man, I think it was called The Making of Jack Falcone. It's, it's awesome, Let's man. Go. So, anyway, Any related stuff is always good, man. Yeah. So, you know, I have like, I have these, I have really good conversations with these guests, man. And, uh, and so it's, it's nice, uh, but you can catch it on my website. It's richfranklin.com really easily. And, uh, or you can catch it on Spotify, Google play or Apple podcasts as well. And, um, yeah, otherwise you can check me out on my socials. I think on Instagram, I'm rich ace Franklin. I think on Twitter. I'm actually just rich Franklin, but you know, I'm verified. So it's easy. Just <laughs> me. You know how it goes. Well, rich dude, I appreciate the time, man. And seriously, let's do it again. And, and good luck with everything else, man. Awesome, brother. Appreciate it. We'll chat. I could literally talk to Rich Franklin forever. That was freaking awesome. And hopefully we'll get him on again soon. And uh, hopefully we'll get Jan Gomes to, to talk to him too, because I know he was excited about talking to him, but the schedules just didn't link up right now. Um, but let's get right into the next guest, uh, Andrea Lee, the flyweight in the UFC division. Got a huge fight coming up um, May 15th versus Antonina Shevchenko. And here she is, Andrea Lee. This is the Fight Fan with your host, Pete Hoffman. And we're being joined right now by flyweight Andrea Lee. How you doing? And congratulations on the fight that was just announced. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. I'm very excited. Yeah, no, that's a that's a fantastic fight. Now, listen, I was I was I'm still waiting for the moment that you get to fight Valentina Shevchenko. No, I still no, think that's gonna that's gonna happen. But Antonina is still a good fight for you. So, oh, yeah. so, so, give me a little uh, taste of what we can expect in this fight. Well, you know, she's such a great striker, and I'm known for striking too. So, I believe that it's a good matchup in that sense. But I also know that her, I guess, wrestling and takedown defense and grappling is her weaker, uh, her weaker point in, in MMA. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, she's not gotten better because um, she has. She most certainly has. And we all, we all, you know, continue to get better even with, with each fight, even like through our losses. Our losses are what make us better, you know, and she lost because of, I mean, like she lost to Roxanne because Roxy got to take her down multiple times during that fight, you know, and um, she's been taken down in a couple of fights. So I feel like she's definitely been working on that, but I would still say that her weakness is probably her ground game. And um, 
So, I mean, I, I just think that you can expect, you know, I'm going to go in there and try to make it easy on myself. And if, <laughs> if that's the way that it's got to be done, then that's the way it's got to be done, you know? <laughs> Listen, uh, Andrea, I love your fights. I love the um, – I always consider you as like the, the Donald Cerrone of, of the flyweights, personally speaking. I, I, I love the, your style. I, I feel like you're, 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 you're game ready. You'll fight anybody, which is great. Um, uh, what, how do you think you can uh, – your last three opponents that you've lost to – how do yeah. you what do you think i feel like you can go in there and 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 win a decision or win a, another fight if you had a rematch how do you feel about that it, what could you what have you learned from those fights well i've learned a lot and i just feel like somewhere in those fights i just kind of started to i guess forget who i was in a sense um you know because if you watch me in invicta and legacy it's like i go out there and i'm like just I just try to get a finish. I mean, and most times, you know, that doesn't end up happening, but a lot of, in a few cases, you know, I have, but it's like, I don't fight to just get by uh, with a decision. It's like, I really want to finish somebody. I want to hurt somebody. And I think like being in the UFC, it's kind of, it kind of gets in your head where it's like, Oh, I got to win this fight. You know, I got to be safe. And I think that that's kind of like probably messed with me a little bit. Um, I would say my Joe with Joanne Calderwood, um, there was a, there was a few elements, you know, with going into that fight, you know, with, and I'm not like trying to make excuses. I just feel like, man, it was so hot in there. And I was like, after the first round, I'm like, man, why am I so tired? I just feel so exhausted, you know? And then I just ended up doing stupid stuff. I kept, I kept, uh, um, shooting for takedowns, which I'm not like the type of person who likes to charge in and try to get takedowns. Like I like to set my stuff up, especially like in the clinch man I just I feel like you know the heat might have been like messing with my brain and I was just doing stupid stuff and I was trying to force these takedowns when I was doing fine on my feet too um but then my fight with Lauren Murphy I feel good about that fight I think that if I had a um maybe defended those few takedowns I would have gotten the win and, and I know that I, I did get up immediately after she took me down and the fight was a very competitive fight on the feet I think that it was it was a fun, gritty fight. I really enjoyed that. I still think that I won that fight, but you know, the judges thought differently. So I don't, I don't feel badly about that fight. I feel like I was there. I was in the fight and that was a great one. Um, my loss to Roxy, I just felt like I had like an out of body experience. I feel like I, I guess I gave her too much credit and I was more focused on what she was good at because mm. she already beat me once before. So maybe I felt like she had my number and I just didn't fight as well as I should have, you know? So uh, I've got a little regrets on that. I've been beating myself up about it because, you know, I, I let that one, I let, I let this like mess me up, you know? Well, don't let it get to you. Cause I, I still love watching you fight. And I, I, I still think that you're definitely one of the best in the division. Like as I was saying, like I, 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 waiting for that Valentina Shevchenko. I'm waiting for your title shot. That's it's going to yeah. happen. I could feel it, especially you think about the, the you know, losing to Calderwood, losing to, uh, to, to Murphy, they're in line for a title chance too. So it's not like yeah. that, that's who we're talking about. The level that you're at, you're right. Yeah. You're right there. So um, I, I, I listen, it happens, but explain to me, why do you think you have those type of like experiences where you're in the cage and it's like outer body experience or, or you're, or something just, 
doesn't click the right way and you're, you're it's too hot and something else distracts you does, does that happen to normally in other fights or just something else would distract you that day well the heat in abu dhabi was that was insane that was not that was different it was i mean they had just put the roof right. on that week the ac had just gotten turned on like a few days before the fight <laughs> they said it really needed a week to to cool the whole place down i wasn't the only one sweating my, my corner was drenched in sweat they said it was so hot just sitting by the cage mm. You know, because then you also have the, the the lights like beaming down on us, and with the adrenaline going, I didn't really think or feel that, but I did feel exhausted. Way like I mean, literally right after the first round, I, I was like, "Man, I feel so tired." And I just remember thinking that going back to my corner, I'm like, "Why do I feel so tired? Did I not push myself enough in my my camp?" I'm like. I know I did. My cardio was great, but I was like, I was just dying, but no. So most of the time I wouldn't say that like heat, you know, normally ever gets to me in any of the fights, but having some, sometimes mentally, I, I feel like that does happen sometimes, even, even in the fights that I have won, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm just out of it. Um, but it, and it takes me a little bit sometimes to like, like get my mind back in the game. What about but, what about fans? What about fans? Like, cause you're like your next fight May fifteenth. Hopefully by then you'll be able to have some fans. Is, do they add subtract to your to what's in the cage? I think they add to it. Um, you know, but in a good way and sometimes in a bad way because I think sometimes when they like, there's a lot of things going on in a fight that fans don't really understand. You know, they're just some of them are just fans. And they just love to watch it, but they don't participate or compete or do anything like that. Um, so there are some instances where, you know, you feel like maybe the fight's getting a little boring or too boring for you. I mean, if you let, if you go like a couple of seconds without throwing anything, fans are going to start booing, I know. you know? We, and so we definitely suck at times. I've been there before. <laughs> we're, ter we're terrible. It's it just – and I think that's – it's the crazy thing is, Andrea, like I've watched some of these fights. Like you think about like a Tyron Woodley versus Stephen Thompson, right? Stephen Thompson. It was not the first time they fought. It was five rounds. I was like on the edge of my seat the whole time. But people were like, oh, this is so boring. But like it was like a chess match. That's what that's, it is. I was just about to say that. And when you play chess, sometimes – I mean, unless you're in, you're competing in chess, you know, I mean, you only have like, you know, you have time. Uh, if you're not competing, let's say if I'm competing in chess or if I'm, I'm having a chess match with somebody and it's not like obviously not competition level, I'm sitting there thinking for like ever. I'm like, man, I want to <laughs> think about their moves and I'm thinking about my move and I'm thinking about the next move. And I'm like, if I do this and they're going to do that, okay, I got to be ready for that. You know, and really that's what it is in a fight. You know, you're, you're analyzing everything. And so, yeah, fans can um, – fans have – they can – it can be good and it can be bad. Because for me, it's like if I start getting booed, I'm like, man, I need to do something. You know, the fans are here to watch, watch us fight, put on a show. I want to be entertaining. I got to do something. And sometimes, I mean, that kind of like you get in a hurry and then you end up in a bad position and, you know, tables turn. And so, like – I'm saying it could be good and bad. Sometimes I feel, I can feel the energy from the crowd and it, and it just, it fuels me. Um, it, it fuels me either way. If I'm getting booed, if I'm not getting booed, but like it can fuel me in a way that like, okay, I need to hurry up and do something. And then I'm, I'm not thinking clearly. And then I, I end up doing something stupid, you know? We watched, uh, I don't know if you caught the fights. I'm sure you did. UFC 259 this weekend, this past weekend. 
You watched. Oh, you did? Oh, it's okay. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you heard about it, though. Am I right? I did hear. Okay. So Amanda Nunes, Megan Anderson, uh, you know, the fight didn't last very long. But, you know, coming from, an, again, another Invicta background, Megan Anderson, I was expecting to see a little bit more. But, but I'm not sure if she froze up, if she – she didn't look top of her game. And, and now, again, Amanda Nunes is just at a different level. Uh, yeah. But, you know, is it something where the elite fighters that, uh, like the champions, like it's a different type of, because you've been a champion before, so in other leagues and other promotions. So you have yeah. the belt. Do you feel that, or go, fighting for that, that championship, does it feel different going up for that, that moment? Well, I mean, that's a fighting for um, a UFC title. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. And, you know, she's going up against Amanda Nunes, who's, who's beat so many incredible great athletes already. You know, it's like, it is very scary. It's very nerve wracking. You know, she's got a, she's a champion in two divisions. And um, I think that maybe Megan uh, definitely probably like coming out had obviously a lot on her mind and maybe she just wasn't completely there. Um, I, I can see why she, if, if she had a lot of nerves, I can see why she would, you know, and, and it's understandable. I mean, you're fighting for a title and, you know, you feel like you have to, you have to prove to everyone, you know, that you can be the champion and you don't want to let anybody down. You don't want to let your team down. You don't want to let your family or your friends, your fans, everybody that believes in you down, you know, it's just a lot of weight to have on your shoulders. And I think, you know, if I was to face Valentina, I mean, I, I would probably feel the same way, you know, but at the same time, you know, that's just where you, you have to kind of try to make yourself look at it. Like it's just another fight. It's just another human being and they can be beat, you know, and you just have to make, find the keys to beat them. You know, what makes Valentina so good out of curiosity, because she really is like a different force in there. And I, I really think that the only, the only challenge for an Amanda Nunes, for example, is a Valentina Shevchenko. I think she could really, uh, you know, she's competed twice with her already. We saw, I think, you know, the second fight, to be honest with you, was too close. I think she could have won. It was, you know, arguably mm -hmm. could have gone out of the way. But what makes Valentina Shevchenko so good? I think she's, she's been doing it so long and just, she can see everything. I mean, she's, she, uh, you know, she's a high level judo practitioner. I mean, she's, she's good on the ground and she's proved that too. I mean, she's a well, uh, she's, she's a good mixed martial artist, but her striking is supreme. You know, I mean, she's so good at countering everything she can. She, I believe she just sees everything that you're going to do before you do it. And she's Southpaw, you know, I mean, she's a really good Southpaw. So, I mean, you're not just fighting just some Southpaw, you're fighting a, <laughs> a freaking high level. I mean, there's levels to this, you know, and she's yeah. at the top, you know, and um, I think that that's just kind of what sets her apart. I mean, she's, she lives it and she breathes it and she doesn't have any other distractions in her life. You know, she doesn't have kids. She doesn't have a husband that I, or a boyfriend or anything like that that I know of. It's just like, she, eats, she doesn't, and, she does yeah. not, which is crazy. Yeah, I don't, so, I don't I mean, know how you do it. You and Andrew, you listen, you, 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 you've, uh, you're, it, it's International Women's Month, so it's something that it, it is special. So, so explain to us, like, uh, uh, you know, with this type of, uh, you know, li having having a life, you know, 
and then fighting on the as well. How how is it to to balance both? <sighs> I feel like I'm constantly trying to figure out how to balance both, and it's uh, it's a never ending. It's never ending, you know, because um, I want to include Ainsley so much, but I can't take her with me when I go places. And not to mention, she's not really the biggest fan of fights anymore. Like, um, so for her, she just, she just wants to be home doing her thing. And, and, you know, I respect that. And, um, plus it, you know, if I was to bring her with me, it would be a big distraction and going into camps, like going into this camp, I know that I'm going to be gone for like eight weeks, maybe, maybe a little longer. I don't want to be gone that long. But um, that makes it hard, you know, being being away for so long because I do have a child, you know. But if I was like Valentina, I mean, I, I would be all over the world like she is, you know, because um, she can do that. And I think that's incredible. Um, and that's why I wish I could bring Ainsley with me sometimes. But she has school and she has obligations, you know, and she also has her, her family, her other family, like her dad and her, you know, uh, her grandmother and her aunt, you know. So, I mean, you know they wouldn't want her to be gone <laughs> I under- off gallivant and traveling the world with me. <laughs> I understand that. I, I have, I have two step kids. So I totally understand, you know, the dynamic between that. Like, you know, you can only take them so far for so long. I, I get it. It's, it's, yeah. it's tough, but you do it and you're successful at it. Right. Yeah, I, I do. And, um, you know, we have a week on week off, uh, custody agreement so the weeks that I have her I, I do my trainings in the morning time which this week I have her so I do my training in in the morning and, and before um, she gets out of school and, and done with her homework and then the days that I on the weeks that I don't have her then I'm able to train in the late afternoon as well so I'm able to do the morning and the afternoon um, how was it by the way was it fully were they in school the whole time because my kids are like half and half they're like uh, it's like this mix it's like half remote half in school. I know what you're talking about, but for her, she was able to go back to school full oh, time. That's great. Oh, thank goodness. Let, yeah. me tell you, let me tell you, it is a hassle. I, I love my kids. Don't get me wrong. But to have <laughs> them home like three days out of the week, do it, trying to be like, come on, do your homework, do this, do that. It's a pain. So I, I, well, I mean, school basically is daycare. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. It is a nice way of saying that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, Andrea, Anything else that you're looking forward to in 2021 for yourself? Obviously, you have this, this fight with Antonina coming up, which is very exciting again. Like, But how many times would you like to fight in 2021? You know, it, I want to have this fight, and I want to go out there, and I, as, as I have no injuries after the fight. I would like to turn around and fight again, honestly. You know, uh, heal up and then turn around and fight again. Cause it's like, I feel like I need, I want to play catch up because, you know, I wanted to fight in December and I didn't get to, and then I wanted to fight before May, like, you know, March or April would have been good, but um, you know, I'm fighting May. So it's like, I would like to turn around and fight, fight again as soon as I possibly can, because I'm still going to be in really good fight shape and I'll be ready for that. And um, you know, I would like to fight at least three or four times, you know, before the end of the year. And I like to squeeze as much in as I can. I want to get back on track. I want to get these wins um, and just fight. You know, I want to, I want to prove why, you know, I, I still belong. I mean, Dana's making cuts and I don't want to be one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I, st- I still think that you're one of the best in the division for sure. So I, I think that you're, you. you're, you're right there at the title. I, I still believe that you guys fight for, for a title very soon. I'm excited for that. Um, well, you know what? 
I just want to say like before yeah. you know, I, yeah. I really appreciate you saying that. You know, I've interviewed with some other people and they're, you know, they, they say things like, well, how does it feel? You know, you, you, you were an up and coming pro, uh, prospect, you know, but now it's like you have these losses and um, does it feel like, you know, you, you're, you, do you feel like you're going to get cut? And like, how do you no. feel like, you know what I mean? So it's like, why don't you even, why don't you even put that in my head right now? I'm like, don't no. ask me <laughs> first of all, all Andrew, people are dumb. All right, that's the first thing. You remember, okay, it doesn't make a difference who they are. They're always trying to hit hit for hard hitting questions and get something out of yeah. you. Listen, to be fair, I still think that you're one of the, again. I, I'm not kissing your ass. I just think you're the, one of the best in the division. And I, I've seen your fights, and I understand what you're talking about. With I understand now where you're coming from with those those previous three fights. But I still think that you could compete with anybody in the division. And I'm looking forward to the, to this Shevchenko fight followed by another Shevchenko fight because I yeah. truly believe that's that's the next in line. But um, and I I do understand that too because I'm actually I I now that you bring this up, what is one thing that does bother you? Because People make picks all the time. Like, I make picks on every single fight. Does it bother you if you see somebody pick against you? Does that really, like, turn you up? Like, F them. I, I hate this person right now. Like, give, give me that insight on you from you. No, I don't I don't get that way. I mean, like, I'm like, hmm, well, I'm just going to prove you wrong. It just kind of, like, makes me smile. That's all. Like, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to prove you wrong. And it, you know, it just kind of, you know, it's a little fuel to the fire. That's, that's about it. Uh, people have opinions and – and they're welcome to them, you know, I mean, that's life. I mean, everybody, you know, is welcome to their own opinion. And if they don't think that I'm, if they don't pick me to win, I mean, that's fine. That's okay. It's not that big of a deal to me. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I see people, you know, I see, I see things that people write on social media all the time, but I don't let it get to me. You know I mean? There's going to be, people are going to be for you. People are going to be against you. And that's just the way it is. And it's tough because, you know, like, I, listen, I, the, the name of the podcast is Fight Fan. I'm not a real, like, you know, I don't want to say I'm not an analyst because I love MMA. I've been following forever, and I've been – I'm as close to this as possible. But I'm a radio guy, so we talk a lot. Mm -hmm. But and sometimes we're overly critical of people. Like, I'm overly critical of Megan Anderson, and I'm a big fan of hers. But maybe that's why I'm overly mm -hmm. critical. So it's like it's not something that we're trying to be, like, really, like, insulting at all. But I can understand why if she ever heard me talk about her, she'd be pissed at me. She'd, be, she'd hate me. But it's she'd not. She'd probably block you. <laughs> yes, yes, I wouldn't be surprised. But right now, she does not block me. But she also doesn't answer my text either anymore. So there goes that. Uh, well, <laughs> well, with Megan, I mean, your your thing is you just you ex you expect more, you know, and you really, I mean, you probably expected her to be more in the fight than she was, and she probably had like a like a, a head, like her mind wasn't there, you know, and that's just she had a, a lapse, and that's that's what happened. Her brain was foggy and. You know, these things happen. But, I mean, as a fan, I mean, you kind of you, – you expect more out of fighters that you – I mean, I'm sure you expected more out of my Roxanne fight. You know what I mean? I know I know so many people that did. My boyfriend was disappointed in me. He even told me. He was like, man, I just expect a lot more out of you. You know what I mean? That's When people believe in you, they expect more in you. You know? And so, I mean, it's, it's understandable, you know? When, when you do lose a fight, though – it, what, what's worse? Is it more about you, you know, your inner, like I let myself down or that you let other people around you down? It's both. It is both. But a lot of it, I think for me, it's like letting other people down, especially those that like expect more from me. Um, before, like, you know, when I was married, like I was more worried about like, 
I can take a loss, you know, I, I show, I mean, like I, I can take it. it. It hurts me. Yeah. It makes me upset or whatever, but I did not want to let down like my coaches, you know what I mean? It's like, I just, I really, they put so much into, you know, and it's like, I really just don't want to let them down. And that's how we feel. Uh, that's how a lot of the fighters feel, I think. But, uh, but in the end, I mean, yeah, we're letting ourselves down when we lose, you know? Well, listen, you'll, you'll make it up by winning your next fight, beating Shevchenko, yeah. and I'm all for that. So anything else before I let you go? Because I thank you so much. You've been ger very generous with your time. But and I know you're making dinner right now or, or lunch, whatever it is. <laughs> I know that there's a time difference. But uh, anything okay. you want to promote? Um, well, I mean, I, I do have a website, andrealeemma.com. I'm working on getting a clothing brand. So I don't have that yet, but I do have uh, signed posters, signed calendars, and I have some pictures and some signed uh, tops parts that I'm going to be putting up here lately or later. Um, so if anybody's interested in those, um, you know, also have uh, sponsors, uh, Victory Beef, Punch Gunk, Hilling Panda, which is a CBD company. Um, and I have some more sponsors that are coming on, but um, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait and give them shout outs, you know, once they're fully on board <laughs> rock and roll that's awesome well thank you so much Andrew, for your time i appreciate it thank you you've been very generous and i'm looking forward to the fight may 15th for antonina shevchenko so thank, thank you thank you so much i really appreciate it you thank have a good day okay thank you again to andrea again just very kind with her time and uh looking forward to having her join us for a round table in the future too that's what she was um she said she had fun so that that's cool i like that uh next up montel Ice Griffin joins me. Great boxer getting inducted into the Hall of Fame in Indiana. Um, so here he is, Montel Griffin. This is the Fight Fan with your host, Pete Hoffman, and we are being joined today by Montel Ice Griffin, who is going to be inducted into the Indiana Boxing Hall of Fame Saturday, May 22nd. How's that feel, Montel? Tell me, you be finally, after all these years, being inducted to the Hall of Fame. It feels great. Uh, we're going in with a great cast. I mean, class. Uh, Donnie Lalonde, Michael Nunn, Tony Tubbs, David Diaz. It's just, uh, Michael, yeah, I said Michael Nunn. Yeah, it's going to be – I'm really uh, uh, looking forward to it. So let's take us through because you have a book out. Um, and it's, it takes you through the journey of your, your – getting to the Olympics in 92. So let's just dive into that really quickly. You know, give us a little setup of how this book is and, and some major moments in your life getting to the Olympics. Uh, this book is just about uh, a young kid making a second chance for himself. Uh, my, my, pop, my pops passed away in 1983. I was 12 going on 13. My mother made me quit boxing. So for eight years, I just sat around as a regular teenager Growing up, hanging out, drinking, smoking, gang banging, all the super, super stuff, and um, I lost my one of my best friends, Ruben Jones, in December of '89. I went through a little depression, and I got up to 210 pounds, and uh, I just got a phone call from my nephew out of nowhere. He said, "Uncle, what you doing?" I said, "Nothing." He said, "Come to LA and start boxing." I said, "Okay," and I answered him so soon. He thought I was playing. I said, "Man, I'm doing nothing with my life." I need, I need to start off somewhere fresh. Because I knew in Chicago, I had too many friends that did, was doing things that, that I couldn't be doing as a fighter. So I had to just get away. So I just moved to L.A. and um, put things together. And I made the limit team with 30 amateur fights. 
So, you know, being in Chicago, it's the, the rough streets and whatnot. You know, t- depression today is such a huge, you know, issue. And where finally there's mental awareness and there's, there's trying to, there's, the, there's helplines, there's all this stuff, other stuff. So really, how do you think you survive that? Because that's tough to go through that at such a young age. I don't even know because um, I know for a fact I should have went to therapy. I thought I was my father. I just, it just changed me as a person. I just kind of became an introvert. Uh, just I only hung out with you know a few friends and you know it was just something like I said something I should have went to therapy I was only twelve years old and just you know what I'm saying my family you know my sisters my brothers and that and us you know so we, we all had like you know so our own little you know little you know problems so I think we all should went to therapy you know, my, father, my father's death meant a lot to his whole family even even the boxing even the gym even the fighters he was training like a lot of guys just came to end up doing things they should have did because my father was gone. Uh, Montel, you know, again, thank you very much for joining us. And, and you know, it's, it's tough to, to dive into your life and to go back to that because, again, like you're, you're rehashing, you know, issues. And, uh, again, depression is something that is, again, so strong. Does it, when going through those, did you feel yourself to, to, that you were struggling as well just to come up with as you were writing and, and going through the, the book process? Well, I, I actually started writing in 06. Um, I, I just had so many people, like I have uh, autographed books and photo albums and people who knew about my life. They were like, man, you got the craziest life I've ever seen in my life. Like, you got to write a book about this. So uh, one of my, one of my uh, well, a guy, Dan McCarthy, I was working at this gym called Equinox, training, training people. Dan McCarthy came in. I started training. He was an arrogant guy. And I came off as arrogant a little bit. Not, not. I'm not an arrogant person, but he's just confident. And that, 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 you know, that got him. And he, I was training him, and he ended up inviting me. He said, "Look, check this out." He said, "I got a, uh, at my office, we need a little help." He said, "I give you forty thousand dollars a year to come in four hours a day and just do what I need you to do." I said, "Okay, what the hell? I'm not doing nothing." Either. <laughs> in his office, and I never had nothing to do, so that's how I started writing the book. So. I told him, I said, you know what I'm saying? I told him, I said, even though you pretty much wasted your money paying me, uh, thanks for letting me get my book done. I got my book done. The Ice Life, that's, a, that's awesome. How did you get the nickname of The Ice? Tell us. Well, my friend, uh, Brian Cooper from my neighborhood, when I got home from Barcelona, he started calling me Ice. And I never asked him why, but he just started, I don't know why to this day he called me Ice. So when I turned pro, they said, do you have a fighting name? I said, well, my friend called me Ice. <laughs> And then when I fought James Tony uh, with only 14 fights, uh, uh, Eddie Futch said, man, this cool, this guy is cool as ice. Like, I've never seen a guy this calm under pressure. So that's how the name got famous. But Brian Cooper gave me that. So take us through your boxing career. You know, James Tony, you fought a couple times. Roy Jones Jr. T- take us through your biggest challenge, getting into the ring, uh, g- going through these years. Of, uh, of, of training, what was your big, like getting into the ring, how did you feel, uh, you know, you were undefeated for all, for all that time. How did you feel getting into the ring and then, you know, suffering uh, adversity and whatnot in the ring? Well, you know, it's boxing. Um, it's nobody, it's nobody has retired undefeated as an amateur and a professional. Nobody. So, like you say, you've, uh, you hit walls. Things happen, and uh, you got to just be a man. Forget about it. Suck it up. That's, that's the most important thing about boxing. Uh, you got to just forget the past and move on. 
things don't go everybody's way. Even though Floyd Mayweather's undefeated, he's not happy about all his fights. So it's certain things that we just had to keep going. You got to have a short memory and just, um, you know, keep rolling. Um, so you won uh, the WBC bout back against Roy George Jr. So explain that to me, how that first went down, that, that first fight. Well, the fight was pretty much going like I wanted it to go. Uh, I thought – I was kind of surprised. I'm like, man, this dude is not really as good as I thought he was. You know I mean, you know, I'm in the ring fighting him. The only thing that kind of threw me off was his speed. He's still the fastest man I've ever been in the ring. So I give him respect for that. But uh, I just try to you know, match speed for speed. I know I'm not fast enough, but I try to match speed with speed with speed, speed for speed with him. You know, as far as kind of punching and, you know, getting my shots off and defense. But uh, like I said, the fight was going pretty pretty good. Like I wanted. Uh, in eighth round, I had my best round. Uh, he laid his, shoulder, his head on my shoulder. I bumped him off. I threw a left hook right hand. I missed with the left hook. If I hit him with that left hook, Left hook, right hand. He might go down. I, I never know. <laughs> I hate that I missed him with the left hook, but uh, that was like I said, eighth round was my best round. Uh, ninth round, uh, things were going pretty good. I was, you know, trying to catch my second win. And uh, during the fight, uh, I saw the right hand coming. And I told myself, I said, you can either block it or roll with it. I tried to roll with it. It was a bad. I made the baddest, uh, the, uh, the wrong decision, and uh, it kind of hit me in the back of the head, and I got a little dizzy. So I told myself, I said, you winning this fight. I said, let's take a knee, and then let's win the last three rounds. I mean, it's just that easy. I wasn't worried or nothing. I really wasn't hurt. I was just I was just shook up. Like, my head was clear and everything. But, uh, you know, when I took the knee, like, like I said, when I took the knee, I didn't get knocked down. When I took the knee, I took a step back, and I looked at the referee, and the man hit me twice. So it was, uh, it was dirty, and he was frustrated, and he, he looked for a way out. So Montel, the reason why I asked that too, because it's it's very pro- it's amazing that I get to talk to you today because you won the championship by a DQ, and in the MMA world, in the UFC world, we just had Aljamain Sterling, who uh, won the bantamweight uh, division, the the title versus Pewter Jan, uh, because of an illegal knee. Same situation. Aljamain is on the ground. His knees clearly on the ground. And Peter Jan got some bad advice from his corner and need him right in the face. And it's an illegal shot. Everyone knows it. It fight was called. Not called right away. They tried to give him some time to come back. But Al Jermaine was just too stung. He, right. wins, he wins the belt. And it's like bittersweet because he wasn't. He didn't even really want to celebrate it. But um, give me – because you're the only other person that's going through the same th- – that, that I can literally say is going through the same thing. How was it winning that belt? What did you feel the emotions? Well, this, this is what happened. True story. I get out the ring. I go to my room. I change clothes. I get in a limo with my wife. We're going back to the hotel. And I said, man, I said, I did not. I said, I was beating him fair and square. I said, I did not want to. I did not want to win no title on this qualification. And um, we went to the WA convention. The WA convention was going on in Atlantic City the same week. But the, the next day, and we went to the WA convention. And I had about 20 of my peers walk up to me and said, bro, no matter what nobody say, you won that fight. He said, he did that for a reason. Like they, everybody, uh, Mills, Mills Lane, everybody said, man, do not keep your head down. Uh, Nate Miller, he said, man, you won that fight. You are the world champion. So after that happened, you know, I felt a little bit better, but I never, I never wanted to win that fight. I, I never wanted to win by this qualification. Because if you watch the fight, I was beating the fair and square. 
Well, that's funny. It's the same thing too. Like Aljamain, I mean, it was arguable in this in this past weekend's fight because the cards had it like they were split two to one both ways. So it, the fight was going in in any direction. But again, like it was towards the end of the, I think it was towards the end of the, the fourth round. But either way, you're saying like you your strategy, you're ment- mentally. Let me just get through this round. Let me get through this, and I'll take it to the next round, and we'll we we'll start fresh. And you just got him frustrated. Um, so clearly, that that to you has to be a victory. And and how how can someone shame you into feeling bad about winning a title like that? Because I mean, really, you did nothing wrong. Oh, I've been hearing this for the last twenty years. Um, people say I did not beat Roy Jones. Um, all his fans, uh, which I could care less what they say. <laughs> I told Roy, I said, Roy, I said, your fans love you so much that they hate me because you hit me on my knee. For real. And he laughed. And he laugh about it. And it's true. Uh, I, I don't understand how certain fighters are above rules. Uh, right. Uh, cheap shot you could do to anybody. I'm glad, I'm glad I didn't lose consciousness or get killed. Because that's how I, he loaded up the second punch and it was dirty as hell. Do you worry, did you ever worry about that, though? in the ring when you got in there about like, wow. T- Cause there's been so many people, you know, uh, in the past few years, actually boxing has had, had a bad run of people dying, uh, fighting. So did you worry that a lot? I mean, about that a lot too. I mean, as you started to have a family and stuff like that, when did it really kick in? Well, uh, Lavanda Johnson, a great fighter who passed away in the nineties. I was in the gym training with him the last day before he went to go weigh in. And he lost to Jesus Chavez, and he died. So that really touched me. And I, it just made me look at this boxing totally differently. Uh, um, it's life at the box. I mean, I never wanted to get hit. That's why I always wanted to be a great defensive fighter, because 20 years later, I still want to speak the way I'm speaking right now. Uh, right. I, I, I want to, you know, I have people say, you want to look, look pretty. Like you, right, you, you don't look like you box. You don't sound like you box. I said, exactly. Right. Like, listen, we saw also Muhammad Ali. Like, I, I, everyone, he's the, the biggest name ever in, in sports and in boxing. And, I mean, obviously, they, he had some other issues and stuff like that, too, that, that took over. But, I mean, how much was that the damage that he took from boxing? And you never want to get that. And when, when do you know when, – when is the point? When did you say, you know what, today was the day I, I have to hang them up? Well, I remember talking to Buddy McGirt and Eddie Mustafa Muhammad. I was like 36, 37. I was rolling. I was feeling good. And I asked him, I said, when did y'all know it was over? And Buddy McGirt told me, he said, I was slipping punches. Then it started scraping my ear. Then I was trying to slip and it was hitting me right in my head. He said, I knew it was over. I knew it was time to give it up. And Eddie Mustafa said he went running one day. And in the middle of the run, he said, man, I'm tired of this. He said, he turned around and walked back home. He said, that's how he knew it. So the thing with me was, that was kind of bittersweet was, I had my last fight at 41. I won. It was my 50th victory, and I thought I still had it. Uh, the people at ESPN was like, man, you look good. Like, you should keep fighting. But um, the offers I got wasn't worth it. So I just said, I'll never retire. I just didn't. I never fought again. Well, listen, it's, it's respectable because, I mean, listen, you also, at some point in time, you have to make sure that the finances is worth, you know, <laughs> you, you're risking your life, man. I get it. I mean, listen, you think about it. Boxing is still way ahead with with finance financially financial security over like UFC and MMA and stuff like that. There, there's a lot of these guys are sitting there like making like thousands of dollars, not like hundreds of thousand dollars. You know what I mean? So it's just it's tough to sit there and like, am I gonna risk my life for this? So I get it, man. Uh, the ice life with uh, with Montel Ice Griffin uh, is joining us right now. Take us through because you talked about when you you wanted to hang it up and you talked about you know 
uh, fighting Antonio Tarver, who is fighting. Uh, he's going to fight versus Frank Mir, who's a, comes from an MMA background. And it's like, you know, we talk about when do we hang it up? When do you do this? What do you do that? And you're a defensive boxer, which is one thing that, like, you know, we see these – we saw Jake Paul knock out Nate Robinson, right? Did you watch that fight? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the thing is, you could work on your striking as much as you want. That's fine. But, but boxing isn't just about the striking. It's about the defense as well. So that's why I'm like, I don't know if I really want to watch those type of fights. I'm not sure if I'm interested. But explain to me, Antonio Tarver – and Frank Mir, how do you think Frank Mir can match up against Tarver? Is this going to be – is he going to wipe the floor with them? Uh, in a boxing ring, you don't have a chance without turning the top. You don't, you don't have a, a chance in the world. Well, he has a puncher's chance. So you got to remember one thing. Tarver knows he's a boxer, and if he loses or gets hurt or anything, that he got to deal with the embarrassment. So he's going to come at it with his A game. And, you know, Frank Mir, whatever happened, happened. But I hope he's, you know, okay. But – uh. I don't think you have a, uh, a chance in the world. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so either. And that's why I'm like, you know what? Like, I, I don't, I don't want to say I like the, um, the spectacle, spectacle of it because you tell me, do you, you, do you see boxing in today's age? Is it missing something? Is it missing the superstars at times? Is there some people that like, we have the heavyweights, but I feel like there's something, it's not as big as it once was. Am I wrong? Boxing is making a huge comeback. Really? Every ways down to the smaller guys from Devontae Davis to Bud Crawford Spence to Canelo to from, from all the way up to the heavyweights. Um, boxing to me is, is as close to the 90s as it's been in a while. There's a lot of great fighters out here. And, and they make another name for themselves. But, like, you talk about Canelo, for example. I just watched that fight the other day. Like, I mean, was that even – that wasn't even competition. And the zone – now, who, whose fault is that? Is that the zone's it's fault? Not, it's not Canelo's fault. It's the sanctioning body's fault. Because if the guy was the number one contender that hadn't fought in a year or two, that's not Canelo's fault. He had to fight his, his mandatory. He's fought his mandatory. Can't get mad at him. I mean, <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. The business of boxing is terrible. Right. The, the promoters and the, all the people that's in, inside of running the game is terrible. Now, as far as the fighters in the game, it's great. Uh, until the government take over and put in, and, and appoint a commissioner with judges who, if they if they judge a bad fight, they get suspended for a month or two. Oh my I, God, dude! It'll stop. It'll stop. You know what I'm saying? These 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 judges in in in, in the, in the a promoter's pockets, and they tell him, they, they right now voting for the guy, but the promoter tell him, hey, this guy got to win, and they win. So it is what it is. It's, it's part of the game. It's been going on forever. And until the, until the government come in and take over and uh, appoint a commissioner and let it be done right, like the other organized sports who has pensions and all other types of things, it'll be perfect. Is it still that dirty? Is it still that that? Got three or four, five different promoters who run their own little camps and they do what they want to do. Just I'll, I'll give you a good example: Bud Crawford and Spence, yeah, Bob Arum and Al Haley. All they got to do is put together, come together, and make the fight. But because they don't see eye to eye, and because neither one of them want their main guy to lose, they're not fighting, which is terrible. But you know what? Think about this. Like you talked about this earlier too. Like every besides uh, besides um, Mayweather. Really, who's who's retiring with a zero next to their loss? Not, not there's really nobody. I mean, you've got uh, Andre Ward, right? Okay, right. 
Ricardo Lopez, the guy's retired undefeated. Right, but but it's but it's but it's different though. It's like shouldn't you be fighting the best? If you're a champion, you should be fighting the best. Look, Freddie Pendleton had like 14 wins before he won before he was world champion. He was the best once he was world champion. So it don't make no difference about the wins. Uh, I think Floyd Mayweather being um, undefeated kind of hurt boxing and kind of made people look at it the wrong way. Like if you get right. one loss, your career's over, and that's crazy. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Joe Lewis was knocked out by Max Spelling before he was even world champion and had the, wrong, the longest reign in history. So who cares because you, you lost a fight? No, I, but if you see Montella, I love that. See, I, I, I come from a, an MMA world where there's, there's people losing every freaking day, you know? Hard, it's a hard sport. Yeah, but so how do you get the, the mentality of that in boxing world to be like, hey, listen, you could lose a fight and it'd be like a really good – like, dude, the Wilder Fury fights. Like, those were, those were good fights. Right, right. But, and neither one of them careers off. If Wilder come right back and, and, and knock out the winner, Joshua Fury, then he's going to be right back. Like they always say in boxing, you only lose your last fight. Just because you lose a fight, it's not, it's not the end. And that's why you need great trainers and teachers – to put that install in kids' heads because you got kids who lose a fight and never be the same at the end. Right. I mean, honestly, there's got to be a better way. Like, so you think the government is the way to do it, to step in and, and get you? I mean, they got the most power to just shut it down. Come yeah. In, appoint a commissioner. Uh, yeah. It would it, just be so much better if it was organized. And like I said, a pension would be, would be huge in boxing. Well, you know, you would know best because you you did all lay work. You you've done all this. I mean, there it, it, there's there's no unions in MMA. You know, that's something that that for example, like they are always talking. They're trying to start something up, but it's just never going to happen because there's too many there's too many individuals, and they're doing they're, they're desperate. You know, they're desperate to get a fight to get a little payday, so they can't sit out a year or two and wait for a union to kick in. You know, I mean, just hopefully in my lifetime it happens. Because, you know, like I said, okay, the state of California, the state of California in boxing is the only state that has a pension. You know what I'm saying? They, they, what they was doing, if you, fight, if you fight there a certain amount of rounds, if you fight, right. a, certain of, if you fight a certain amount of rounds, uh, they take, you know what I'm saying? If you fight, uh, I think it's 114 rounds in California, you're able to receive a pension. What they do is they take a small portion out your purse and just put it up. Like in 1990. When I fought in LA, and they took some out of my purse, I'm like, "This is crazy." But now I'm thinking about it now. I'm 50, so I, I'm getting ready to receive my pension. So now I'm glad. So you know what I'm saying? It's just all about uh, being smart. Well, it's tough because how do you tell? Again, you, you talk about your background too. Like, how, how do you? When did that click for you to be like, "Oh shit!" Like, I, I have to really step up of how I'm how I'm saving money, how I'm taking care of stuff. Because there's, listen, you, kids these days. In this world that we live in today, it's it's completely different. Everyone's thinking that things get handed to them. They don't have to work as hard. Uh, how, how do you – when did it change for you mentally? Like, okay, I really have to I – was, I was just cheap, bro. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to be real, which I was cheap. I, I mean, people – you was the cheapest dude with money I've ever seen in my life, and I, I want to keep some of it. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I end up uh, – I, had a, I, had, I went through a divorce, so I had, you know what I'm saying, I had to break up a little piece of that, but besides that, man, I just, I, I, try, I didn't try to spend no money. 
No, I get it, man. Listen, I, I, I hear you on that. I, I, the divorce is not easy. Trust me. I, I, I have, my wife is divorced. So that's, that's, it happens and it's, it's never, never an easy thing. Uh, the ice life, um, May 22nd, your Montel Griffin is being, uh, inducted into the Indiana boxing hall of fame. Incredible, incredible. Um, give us a little bit more though. Cause again, the book is coming, the book is out, uh, talks about the Olympics. Cause so, so again, like give us the highlight of that, of the, of the, of the Olympic run for you. Olympics to me is the greatest experience I've ever been through in my life. I was, uh, I just put you like this. I, I, I took off for eight years. January 1991. I got to, I went, I went to LA at 210 pounds. I was a fat little kid. I had my first fight January 1991. January 1992, I was number one in the nation. That summer, I made the limit team with only 30 amateur fights. And just the run I had, uh, I beat three guys who was number one in the, in the United States. Jer John Ruiz, Jeremy Williams, and Terry McGroom. And then I beat two world champions. So I, I think I did pretty good for 30 fights. Uh, I mean, everybody who saw, you know, everybody who saw my Olympic fight tell me, of course, I got robbed. I should have, I got the win because um, I cut the guy's eye open a little bad. But, you know, saying, things didn't go my way. But, uh, you know what I'm saying? I, I'm, I'm the type of guy, I'm the type of guy that's be able to help kids out because I've been through everything, the good, the bad, you know what I'm saying, in between everything. So I, I have the experience to be able to talk to anybody and help them try to make them better. What, who's, uh, is it difficult for you to, to connect with the kids these days? Like how, how, I mean, they obviously look up to you. They, they know your history. They know your career. But how do you really break through? Okay, to be honest with you, like, I, I, I do, uh, I work with After School Matters. It's a program after school. I've been dealing with them eight years. And I also have my nonprofit, Windy City Boxing Youth Foundation. So when the kids come in and I talk to them, it's like, Okay, but when they see me on TV, then they come back to the gym. Then it's like they they wide open and they listen to everything I say. So it's crazy. So like once they feel, I I've never felt like a celebrity. I've never been treated like a celebrity. But once they feel I'm a celebrity, they they whole attitude change and they listen to everything I say. Well, you're doing the right thing, Montel. I, you know, that's awesome because, again, like, that's all we're trying to do is, is direct the youth into a right way, you know. That, that's all we're looking to do. We want to have a good, you know, we want the world to be a better place for sure. And it starts with you. So thank you for all you do, man. This is our future. I live my life. So now it's, it's time to, you know, help out, you know, help these kids. Okay. Uh, before we let you go, Montel, is there anything else you'd like to, I mean, obviously you got the book. Is there anything else you want to promote? I mean, like I said, I have my own boxing gym. It's been open three years. Clarence Griffin, my father, Winnie City Boxing Club in Pilsen, 2150 South Canal Port in the basement. Uh, I have my book out, The Ice Life. Uh, anybody's uh, interested in buying a book, it's theicelifebook.com. Theicelifebook.com is my link to buy the book. And also, I'm just doing other things and, you know, just trying to – I'm, I'm working fight uh, corners. Uh, I got uh, Von Alexander fighting uh, – March 26th in London uh, against Zach Parker for, um, for title eliminator. So that's coming up. So I'm, I'm just trying to make moves, man. I'm trying to do positive things, man. And, and just, uh, I want my kids to be proud of me when I'm gone. Well, Montel, I, they certainly will, man. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. Thanks so much for the time, man. I'd love to have you on again soon, too. And congratulations on being inducted to the Hall of Fame. That's awesome. The Indiana Boxing Hall of Fame, Saturday, May 22nd. That's, that's amazing, man.
very much. It's always on, and, and I, I feel good about it. Thank you very much again to Montel Griffin, to Rich Franklin, to Andrea Lee. Everyone gave me your time. It was awesome. I appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. At the Hoff, WFAN on Twitter, at the Fight Fan, Twitter as well, the, uh, the show page, Twitter. We will have picks out from me and everybody else who's uh, who's on board. Our boy Matt Casey gets involved too. So um, check it out there as well as Facebook, Instagram, uh, and, and uh, YouTube as well. Uh, I will be back next week with more. And again, this weekend's car, Leon Edwards and Bilal Muhammad are the headline. So check out my picks. And good luck. Have fun. See you next time. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.